Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion. Championship team. This Ace Cast download is brought to you by Link Soul. Go to linksoul.com and by Nest Betting. Love where you sleep. Go to nestbetting.com. This is Ace Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. And the pitch is swung on, hit the right field, hit deep. Whitefield going back at the track over his head and over the wall. Do you believe that? And 29 other MLB clubs. Ramirez with a drive to deep right, away, back, goal! Go hey, it's a bomb out there by the Rocks. And boy, oh boy, this third inning is now showtime. It is a judgy in blast. All rise, here comes the judge. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From humidors, to spin rates, to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. I'm sure you're thinking, why would I talk about Mason Miller being in the bullpen? I, I know you're probably still saying to yourself, why? Because everybody wants him to be a starter. Why might that be important for the A's? Um, well, I want to know. I mean, we've had our own. Th- I've had my own theory about him being probably the way the hard, as hard he as hard as he throws coming out of the bullpen. I think he could be utilized better as a one or two inning guy, and he might be able to keep him healthy longer. But I'm curious to see what you have to say after watching oh, do him. Do you have any data to back that up? Um, no, I don't. Okay, I think I got some data. All right, the Atlanta Braves. And this is going to be something that is going to be hard for people because we still live in an archaic. The way baseball is covered is very interesting. You have people who want to be very modern, but they want to be snobs with, with data. And then you have the archaic group that wants to hold on to what they've always believed. Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Right. I'd like to fall somewhere in the middle because I think data is important, and I still think some of the old school values. I mean, I'll go back to football. You can say whatever you want about football. The game of football is still won by blocking and tackling. You don't block, you don't tackle. You don't dominate up front both sides of the ball. You're not winning anything. I don't care who your quarterback is. I don't care who who your fantasy football guys are, Cody. If the big ugly can't protect the quarterback up front, you got no shot. 
And if you can't get to the quarterback with a pass rush, you got no shot. I mean, the game of football is still won by blocking and tackling. That that is that that will never change, right? And as Roxy brought up, look at the teams that were so good defensively. The teams that were just hundred game losers in Arizona and Texas, they're now winners. Well, one of the reasons that really help is their is their defense. But velocity is a big thing. And when you look at Atlanta, Atlanta this year had a record slugging percentage. Remember, they had 307 home runs. But Atlanta's slugging percentage against pitches 96 miles an hour or slower was 512. That's incredible. As a team. A team, Cody. 512? Yeah, because they finished what? Didn't they finish with over five hundred overall? Right? Is they're it? the first team ever yeah. to finish. They're the first team ever to finish a season. I I, I don't know how. I, I know it's at least modern day baseball, whatever we want. Live ball era, whatever. They are the only team to ever finish with a five hundred slugging percentage. Okay. Now against ninety six or slower, their slugging percentage as a team was five twelve. You. Start bringing the big gas in as a team, 97 or faster, it drops all the way to 396. Their slug dropped from 512 to 396. This, there is reasons why teams who dominate the regular season and get into the postseason don't win. We want to act because what happens is, folks, getting to the getting to the analytics crew. They want to find reasons why their numbers don't work. They want excuses, right? The famous thing, Billy Bean, Moneyball, my stuff doesn't work in the postseason. Well, there's a reason. There's always a reason why stuff works and doesn't work. And what you're seeing here is Atlanta against people who don't throw gas, they feast. You do throw gas, they struggle. Well, what does Philadelphia do better than anybody else? I'll tee it up for you, Cody. What do the Philadelphia Phillies, what are they for sure, other than winning at home in the postseason, what is Philly number one at in baseball? Uh, relief. Let me guess. Relief pitchers that throw over 97 miles an hour. 2,022 pitches. Is that a small sample size? That's a pretty big sample size. 2,022 pitches thrown by the Phillies bullpen. 22% of their total pitches are 97 or more. Remember, there's a lot of breaking balls sort of baseball these days. Slider, 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 sweeper, sweeper, sweeper. But when it comes to bringing the gas, nobody, nobody throws harder 97 or more than the Philadelphia Phillies. They are numero uno in baseball. So when you start matching that up, because the Philly starters, especially like Wheeler, Nola, I mean, Ranger Suarez is not going to be that guy. But use, their starters bring it, and then now you're bringing in the, the they're bringing in the five-headed monster. Um, the Braves batted just 186 overall in the series. And they, let's see here, 13-6. By the way, their OPS, that so... They're slapping. So the Braves batted 186 in the series. This is your massive, we hit more home runs than anybody else. 
All these talking heads were saying it could be the greatest lineup. I still got to bust Vince Catronio's chops because if you remember one of my late third inning hits, I was like, "Hey man, we haven't had a team who led the we haven't had a team who led the league in home runs win the World Series since the '09 Yankees." And I had a bunch of these statistics why the Braves could be vulnerable. Remember what Vince said to me when I threw it back to him my third inning hit. I'm trying to remember now. He said, talk to me in October. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cliche. It's October. <laughs> uh, Braves batted 186 overall in the series, but against pitches 97 or more, the Braves only hit 115 against the Phillies in that series. And the OPS was 363. Essentially, there is a reason their pitching stunk, their starters stunk, and they couldn't hit velocity. So don't tell me there's randomness of why teams lose in the playoffs. They couldn't match the intensity. They couldn't match the fastballs. They couldn't hit. There's a reason why the mighty Atlanta Braves went home. They were a one-dimensional team. You took away their one dimension, and they couldn't beat you. They got no way to beat you. That's just fact. So that's why I say Mason Miller to the bullpen for the A's may not be a bad deal to have a guy who can crank it up to 102, 103, sitting in your bullpen for the postseason. And you might say, Townsend, they're not going to the postseason. I get it. I just, I don't know if he can stay healthy as a starter. And you you see teams, i.e., you know, what if the Corbin Carroll of the A's is Zach Allen? I know that's a stretch, but what if this young group can turn it around pretty fast? You're going to need some gas in the bullpen. And the one guy that you got that has that kind of gas is Mason Miller. Mason Miller, who was it? It might have been, I like to show foul territory. They do a lot of what we do. I respect what they're doing because they got a, a lot of former players. It was somebody on foul. T- oh, it was that crazy Jonathan Papelbon. Oh, my God. Jonathan Papelbon admitted that he was doing, like, uppers and three shots of Jaeger before he went. I mean, that guy's a nut job. But Papelbon said it. He goes, you know, if you're a starter and you don't go very many innings, you really don't affect the game. And I agree with that. If I'm not going to get a lot of if I'm not going to get a lot of outings and a lot of innings on a Mason Miller, he's not going to affect a lot of the games. But if I can get a lot more outings of him out of the bullpen, he's going to affect a lot more games. That's where you got to start to think is the best thing for Mason Miller's health, his career, and for us to win is to put him in the bullpen and put that velocity in the bullpen. I think that's the right play and cuz we you, as you mentioned the having data to try to keep him healthy, I think that might be the best way to try to see if that's what we're able to do. And that's what the team started doing towards the end of the year this year is you had him pitch later in games and pitch only a couple innings. Hopefully that's something that keeps him, keeps him healthy going forward because he, he has an electric arm. Just like Luis Medina, I think they're going to keep giving Medina a shot, but I, I completely agree with you. I think that that's the, the right role for Mason Miller to, to keep him healthy. Uh, it was really a shocker when Cody sent it to me and then you go on X – and you start looking at it, it, it is a big shocker because usually when you take a franchise that's not used to winning and you win, 
everybody gets celebrated, right? Everybody gets elevated. Everybody gets elevated. Everybody gets contract extensions. Everybody's feeling pretty good. That's not the case in Miami, South Florida. Kim Ng, who is a trailblazer. We know about her career with the Yankees, with the Dodgers. Became the first female ever to be a general manager. Huge deal. Jessica Kleinschmidt had her on A's cast for us and also played it on the pregame show, A's Total Access. She's a big deal. She got them to the playoffs, 84 and 78. She is no longer the general manager of the Miami Marlins. She has stepped down. She had one year. She had an option on her contract. They picked up the option, obviously. She, it was a mutual option, we have found out. She declined. And you're like, what the, I mean, not to say that the Marlins have always, and Roxy Bernstein's going to be on, he used to work for the Florida Marlins. Not to say that they always make the best decisions, but this is also one that's very political, right? I mean, this is one where you've hired a female, She's done an unbelievable job. She's gotten you to the playoffs. And now the year you get to the playoffs, she's stepping down. Now, I originally thought, because you you say, okay, I I have to formulate an opinion or really a guess on why I think it's going down. My guess would have been this. My guess would have been, I just got you to the playoffs. You're only picking up my option. I I need multiple years. Which, strike while the iron's hot. I I would agree with her. If I was her agent, I'd be like, we're going in, pay raise, pay raise for your staff, and we're talking about a multi-year deal. We don't want to hear about you just picked up the option. That's what I would have thought it was. And then it was even bigger than that, according to some of our experts in the game, our national guys. Jeff Passing is where I saw it. I know multiple people have put it out there. That they wanted to now just pick up her option, which I still think is right. I still think I'm right on that. Like, this is all you got for me? But it's bigger than that. They wanted to bring in someone above her, a president of baseball operations. God knows how annoying those have become. Because we got to have more cooks in the kitchen. So because I'm going to read the tea leaf saying you're only picking on my option, and then Jeff Passan and other guys are saying, well, it's because they want to bring in a president of baseball operations. I mean, think about that. If you're bringing in a president of baseball operations and you've only picked up the last year, essentially the option year on my contract, that means the baseball – President of Baseball Operations is just coming in to evaluate me. I'm a lame duck. I do not blame her whatsoever. And boy, for a franchise that has taken a lot of egg on their face, they've done it again. That's really breaking, shocking news in the baseball world. That Kim Ng, first female general manager, highly regarded in our game, has worked for two of the most iconic American franchises, just not baseball franchises, American franchises. When you talk about the Yankees and the Dodgers, 
And then she gets the Marlins in a division that featured the 104-win Braves, featured the, God love them, just renegade outlaws, the Phillies. I always are like that summer ball team that's so tough to beat. The Mets, who spent more money than any team has ever spent in the history of baseball. You're in this division, and you get to the postseason? And that's the best you got for me as the general manager? And I'm a trailblazer? I make you look good. Are you kidding me? This isn't, I'm thankful to have my job. I'm quitting this job, and I'll have a job tomorrow if I want. I've helped you bozos out. You guys have been incompetent for years. You're so incompetent, your guy Jeter, who was supposed to turn the world around, he's now giving bad takes on Fox. His big take yesterday, Jeter, did you watch the postgame show? I did not. I told you I don't watch their postgame show. All right, so once again, A-Rod, Big Poppy have zero to offer. Jeter was like, see what happens when your starting pitchers go deep in postseason? Thanks, Jeets. Appreciate it. Brilliant. Just brilliant analysis from our Fox crew. How much are they getting paid? But that is the breaking news today in baseball other than the games. Kim Ng is out as general manager of the Miami Marlins, and they've got a lot of explaining to do. So now you've got to go find a president of baseball operations, and you got to find a general manager. And that also means you're going to, because you got to remember when you do stuff like this, you're probably going to bring in your own people. So that starts to trickle down to, does that mean you replace the assistant general managers, the head of scouting, scouts, the whole, I mean, a team that is on the rise, you're now going to revamp. Some people may say, I don't care. I get it. I just find it very very puzzling. And why why did they feel why did they feel that they needed to and I'm not asking you Cody to have the answer since I know you are not as connected into the South Florida as people may think. Um but why would you feel that after what she's done that you need to bring in someone above her and only pick up her option? Better yet, why don't you just feel like if she's done a great job what she has, what she did with the Marlins? I know she took over after the 2020 year. It was the first time in a full season they made the postseason since they won the World Series in 03. So it's not like the Marlins are a perennial playoff team. Why wouldn't you just elevate her to be the president of baseball ops and then bring in a general manager if that's how you felt? But it's the Marlins, and they've made these mistakes. I mean, remember, two years ago, Jeter was out, and then now Kim Ng's in, and she's gone, and she's going to find a job somewhere else. I mean, I've seen a few places that they – I think the Athletic had it, Ken Rosenthal, and Tyler Kepner had it in there. Uh, they mentioned the, the Red Sox because she's close with Alex Cora and they work together with the Dodgers. They mentioned the Mets, which I don't see her going to be the general manager of the Mets because they hired David Stearns. But the interesting one was, could they potentially hire her to be the president of baseball ops with the Chicago White Sox, where she worked earlier in her career, and be the president of baseball ops there above new GM Chris Getz? So there's some potential places we could see Kim Ng end up. But, yeah, very puzzling move by the Marlins, who – she made some good moves at the deadline, getting Jake Berger um, and Josh Berger Bell. Berger was huge. She brought in the, the team didn't score runs. Josh Bell played well. The two guys they brought in helped their offense when they weren't weren't they, when they weren't able to score runs. And then 
obviously Sandy Alcantara is having Tommy John surgery, so we won't see him. But she did a great job at the few years she was in Miami, and then to see this happen, it's just a bad thing. It's a bad look for the Marlins. Arise, arise came in and hit. That was I mean, a good Lopez trade too. Threw, threw, Lopez threw great for the Twins, but Arise came in, gave them consistency offensively. Jorge Soler uh, really, really stepped up this year and hitting bombs. So I mean, they got to the postseason. You're the Marlins, and you got to the postseason. That's why we have the wild cards. It gives people like the Marlins a chance. Who it's going to be really tough in a division that has, you know, let's face it. The I just know this because they're a part of the NBC family, but. You know, NBC is the cable is connected just like we are connected to NBC. Phil, Philly's connected to NBC. Philly's TV deal is $250 million. So before the Phillies ever throw a pitch, they're getting $250 million for television. Like, do you realize that? I mean, that's what people don't realize. These cable deals, they're not all equal, not even close. Philly gets $250 million. That's the last I heard. Who knows? Since I heard that was a couple of years ago, it could be escalated up even more. But they throw a pick. You think we're getting two hundred fifty million? You think the Marlins are getting two hundred fifty million? I mean, basically, their salary. It's like it's like the how the NFL works. The NFL works is that the TV money is always more than what the salary cap is. So the TV money will always pay for the players' salaries. So basically, Philly, I don't know what they're – they have one of the highest payrolls. I don't know what their payroll – but put it this way. Their TV pays for their payroll. So all the parking, all the tickets, all the suites, all the beers, all the hot dogs, all that stuff just goes right in the owner's pocket. All the local deals, all the stuff that Philly makes, it all just goes boop right in the owner's pocket. So that's why it's funny when they go, hey, listen, this guy wants to win. This guy spends money. Oh, really? Well, his TV deal takes care of his salaries. Now, if his TV deal was $50 million and he had a payroll of 200 something million, would he still be the same guy? No, and I just looked. Their pay- opening day payroll was $243 million. So their TV, from, I know, was 250 their deal a year. 250 so for all these people who pop on X, and once again, I don't hate you, just a lot of you are misinformed. You think, oh, yeah, look at your owner. He's wheeling and dealing. His payroll is paid for before the season even starts with TV money. Isn't it amazing how big of a wheeler and dealer you can look when you have that comfort? You have that comfort. Like before you even roll it out, Paid for. It's a different ball game. That's why basketball, football, and hockey are different than our sport. We'll go into that in the offseason. You know, there was a little I was waiting to see how I wanted to bring this up with you. Um, well, well, the research packet is here. Well, Glanville was on. There was, news, there was some news from the uh, Boston Globe about who just recently interviewed for the uh, – the old Red Sox head position. All right, hold on. Do I need to prepare for it? Yes. Wow. Somebody I know. Yep. Personally. Been on this program before. Wow. Okay. Been on this program, and he was in the Bay Area. And he's interviewed for the Boston job. I'm going to say he didn't work for us. No. 
He's a giant. Yep. Not going to be Brian Savian. Nope. Um, Ned Coletti? Nope. He used to be a farm director. Farm director for the Giants? No, but he Ooh. worked for the Giants. Once a manager of the year with the Giants. Manager of the year? Yeah. Knows Farhan well. Former Red Sox player. No, Gabe Kapler? Gabe according Kapler? To according to Major League sources, former Giants and Phillies manager Gabe Kapler's interview with their Boston Red Sox about leading their baseball operations department. As the CBO? It says that he's the, um, from according to what I screenshotted, um, an unexpected name has emerged in the Red Sox search for a new head of baseball operations. So, yeah, he'd be the head. He wouldn't be the GM. He'd be the guy leading the GM. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. There's no way you're selling that. No way. And by the way, CBS Sports just put it out. Gabe Kapler interviews with Red Sox. <laughs> Boston's prolonged search for a new baseball exec adds unexpected candidate. Oh, my God. Let's see what they say. Did you get that off CBS? No, it was Boston Globe. Wow. So he's not. See, I'm confused. I am really confused. Are they do? Is this. Um... Because I have seen they, they're all over the map. I have seen they have, they've interviewed guys for the CBO position, mm-hmm. right? And they've interviewed guys for the GM. Yes. Like, uh, there were some guys that turned it down, like Fold and other guys that turned on the chance to interview. But I believe it was the, the, Twins GM Thad Levine interviewed because Derek Falvey, the head of baseball operations, did not want to interview. Um, I'm just trying to remember what other candidates even interviewed for that job. Um, I'm pretty sure I think I saw Neil Huntington's name mentioned, the former Pirates GM. Yeah. Uh, But Gabe Kapler, now the newest name to interview for the head of baseball operations, it looks like, according to the Boston Globe. Wow. Wow, it is. (laughs) Well, they're bringing back a former Red Sox, so he has Red Sox ties. Um, and he was a farm director. Kapler is a smart dude. Like I, I never, I never, I never want to crap on him like a lot of people have, because, like I, I, I think I've told this story. I used to have Gabe Kapler on my talk show on ninety five seven back when he was a Fox guy. And you could go a lot of different directions with Kapler. Yeah, you could get into analytics. You could get into fitness. You could get, I mean, he can get it totally into mental health. I mean, Kapler is a bright man. Burgers, big burger guy. Steak guy. I mean, he. he Cycling. He, you can, his Instagram, I mean, he, he once did a beautiful ribeye steak on his Instagram. I was very impressed. <laughs> I, Kapler is not a, I mean, he is a bright guy. So, I'm not totally shocked. Maybe, just maybe, because remember, he was in the Dodgers front office. Yeah, he was their farm director. So it's like maybe managing people in uniform 
is you're not going to shut out someone who's smart, right? That's not that's not a good idea. Sometimes in life, you just got to find out what 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 is what's your calling, and maybe managing from inside the dugout and in uniform is not your calling. But maybe he could be a brilliant front office guy. But you just go. It just you start to wonder when you just start interviewing all these different people. And I know there's gonna. Hey, you know, strategy. We're gonna we're 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 gonna check. We're gonna check with everybody. We're gonna do our due diligence. No stone unturned, as they'd like to say. But then are you just guessing? I mean, what does that say? Like somebody's got to wow you in the interview. And then let's 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 face it. Some people are great are great subjects at interviewing. Some people are phenomenal at interviewing. You know, in our business, I've worked with somebody like this. They're fabulous when they're the person that's being interviewed. The minute they got to be a host, they're awful. And everybody just goes, "Oh wow, I didn't see that coming. He was so good." on the radio when he was being interviewed. But the minute he's got to be the guy in the other chair, awful, like awful, so unnatural, so uncomfortable, and it never developed. So I can get in front of you and be somebody. I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you somebody who's out of the Bay Area now who best describes this. Eric Musselman. Eric Musselman is phenomenal at interviewing. Great personality, smart, knows how to read the room, knows how to work people. Eric Musselman is phenomenal at interviewing. And some of you Warrior fans may forget he was once the head coach of the Golden State Warriors. This is a guy who out of nowhere kind of be kind of got a little celebrity by constantly coming on and being great with Jim Rome, right? He was constantly on with Jim Rome back when a lot of people, I, I, I don't know what Jim Rome's reach is now, but back in the day, Jim Rome's reach was pretty pretty big. Rock that guy. And Musselman would come on, and Musselman was phenomenal. Musselman, and I don't, I don't want to say he was bad. What was his final record with the Warriors? Because mm, at one point, they actually played pretty decent under Musselman. Because he's now the head coach of the of the Arkansas Razorbacks. Yeah. Uh, he was 75 and 89 in yeah. two years of the Warriors. They weren't good, but there was the times where they played better. He got fired, then gets the job with the Sacramento Kings and got the DUI right away. It just kind of sabotaged the whole, and it just went downhill from there. And then out of nowhere, resurrects Reno, UNR. And the Martin then, Twins. And then now he's at Arkansas. But people will tell you, no question, Eric Musselman, when it came to wowing ownership, wowing in the interview, Musselman was, was that guy. And I think Kapler's got a lot of that. I think Kapler's got a lot. He gets in front of you and starts talking. He's an impressive man. Like, we had him on. Yeah, at the winter meetings, right? 2019. Like, we've had him on on this show. I've had him on the other show, and uh, he's phenomenal. But what, but what will he be? Like it's like funny. Like what are they? What are they interviewing Craig Breslow for? Is it GM? Reports are saying that, but then I've seen reports. Other guys have have interviewed for the CBO job. Their chief baseball officer. Like 
it's kind of like they're bringing guys in, and it's going to be like, huh, how will we, you know, they're bringing them in to, to identify how will we move them inside the Red Sox. Do we want them to run this? Do we want them to run that? I don't know. It's a pretty big job. Boston Red Sox, big market, big money, big job, high expectations. They just kind of seem like they're they're all over the board right now. I'm just waiting for the storylines if, in a hypothetical world, Kapler somehow got the job in Boston. And it comes down to Shohei Otani is going to land with the Giants, and all of a sudden Kapler swoops in and steals Otani from Farhan. <laughs> The, the storylines, the Giants media, how they would react. Oh, my God, it'd be great. Well, you know, you're going to hear the same things you heard about Breslow, right? He checks the boxes. He's, he checks analytics. He knows how to get analytics into the dugout. Being a former manager, right? They're gonna this, These are the things that they're going to say. Watch. He'll check the boxes, right? He understands what's going on on the field because he's been a two-time manager. He's going to understand how to get the data to the coaching staff that gets to the players. I'm just waiting for the. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the the fans in Boston to revolt whenever something goes wrong or, you know, Kapler's putting out Instagram videos of him riding his bike to the ballpark and. How how are any of these guys different from Mind Bloom? Great question. That, hey, that, I mean, that's my thing. It's like you fired the guy. And then who is Mr. Analytics coming from Tampa was supposed to change. And people, well, he got rid of Mookie and he made him take David Price's money. And he did this and he did that. And the farm system's a little bit better now. I mean, what, what, what are you changing? Like what's dramatically going to be, what will be dramatically different from Craig Breslow and Heimblum? What will be dramatic? I mean, Gabe Kapler from Heim, what, what, what will be dramatically different? Well, you want well between between Breslow and uh, wait, didn't they both go? To, I think they both went to Yale, so there's that. They're in common with that. Well, let me <laughs> tell you something. You inherit whoever gets these jobs. You inherit Boston people. Majority of them have all been there a long time. I want you to think about that. A lot of the baseball operations people. It's not like you go in and clean house, and that may be one of the reasons why. Guys have said no to the job. I know one of these people. They have made it through Dombrowski. They've made it through Charrington. Who was before Charrington? Um, I mean, you're talking about Theo. The, Theo. I want to say, I mean, the, some of these people have been there before Theo. You've got people have been there for over 20 years. They've got a lot of people inside their baseball operations group. It's a lot like the A's. That guys have been here 20, 25 years. So it's not like you're coming in going, you're all out of here. And I'm putting in my guys. I'm not sure you're allowed to do that. Kind of Raider-esque. Like, I'm going to hire you, and you're going to come in, and you're going to make it work with the people that we have here. And that may be why some people like a John Daniels, who has run the Texas Rangers, goes, eh, no. I don't want to – I don't know who these people are. I don't know everybody. I'm sure they're competent, whatever, but they're not my guys. I'm not – if I have to If I have to still deal with people who have already been here for a long time, I don't want the job. We have Rock. Well, bring Roxy up. Don't be texting me. Bring him up. What's up, Roxy? Hi there, Uncle Townie. How are you? 
you heard me. By the way, once again, Cody, where'd you go? Cody, what, what do you have in the NLCS? Uh, I have the uh, I have the Diamondbacks in seven. That means he's guessing. Whenever someone says seven, they're guessing. I'm going Diamondbacks in six. I believe in these snakes, Roxy. What do you got? You're both, you're both on the Tory Lovello train, huh? Love, trust, commitment, and effort. We always root for A's. Well, here, here's the thing about that. When I, I'm thinking about the matchup between these two teams, Chris. Is Corbin Carroll the best player in the series? What do you, you know, think? There's, a, there's a whole thing about ro- guys, rookies, ALCS. I got a whole list. One of them's Walt Weiss, by mm-hmm. the way, in 1988 against the Boston Red Sox. Uh, he does it all. He does it all. I mean, I, I know right now Castellanos is doing historic things. Bryce Harper turns 31 today. He's been incredible. Trey Turner, ever since they started cheering him and not booing him, he's been a different guy. But, yeah, when you talk about somebody that does it all, Corbin Carroll is a very – I mean, you could dunk on him, but I tell you what, he he, he is uh, – he's, spe- he's not only a tremendous baseball player, but he's a special athlete. And so not only possibly Arizona has the best player in the series, right, Chris? But is Zach Gallon yeah. the best pitcher in this series? Zach Wheeler is pretty historic, though, when he, when it looks yeah. at his postseason. So I but don't know. Gallon of them terrific in his two postseason starts so far. And so yeah. if you have the best player and you have the best pitcher in the series, that would make you feel pretty good about your chances, wouldn't you think? I got D-backs in six. And there's something to be said when you look at the metrics for this Arizona team and who are the top two defensive teams in baseball this year? They're both still playing. It's the Diamondbacks and it's the Rangers. And there's something to that. And they're athletic. Arizona catches the ball. They it's funny because they haven't really been slugging much this year. They're middle to bottom as far as home runs go but not in the postseason. And it's changed a little bit. I I think a key is we'll see how healthy Gabriel Moreno is after he took that tip off the hand uh, in in game three of the NLDS. Um, Arizona said that there's no fracture. It's fine. Everything's good. He's critical to what they do and how strong they are defensively, especially up the middle with Moreno behind the plate. You got Cattell Marte and Geraldo Perdomo at, at second and short. Alec Thomas, who's had a good postseason in center, uh, mentioned Carroll in right field. There's no pressure on them. Arizona's not supposed to be in this situation, right? And there's something to be said for that when a team just goes out there, they play loose, they're having fun. And as Tori Lovello said, post that series in Milwaukee, a connected team is a dangerous team. They're a connected team. They believe in one another. Their bullpen has been fabulous. They can go in and win the series. It wouldn't shock me if that happened, even though I think you'd have to say Philadelphia is the favorite. No, they're the favorite. You're going to be the favorite when you got four home games in a seven-game series and you've been so dominant at home. How important is it from Arizona's side to score early? I think it's critical. And you saw that in the Dodgers series, right? They jumped on Kershaw for six runs in the first inning in game one. Then in game two against Bobby Miller, they put up a three spot in the first inning, and then they were scoreless 
until the third when they hit four homers against Lance Lynn. So it's funny, Chris, because you think it would be important. But then look what happened in the wild card series. They were down multiple runs in each of the two games that came back and won. They trailed 3 nothing in game one, trailed 2 nothing in game two. But I think this is a different animal than Milwaukee in terms of if you have an early deficit. The Brewers don't have the firepower to necessarily put you away. And they just waited out Burns, and they finally got to him in game one. They waited out in game two against Peralta, and they finally got to him, and they took advantage of the Brewers' bullpen. This Philly team's a little different, and the Dodgers didn't necessarily have the pitching to, I, I think, to really take down Arizona, but the Phillies do. When you're going to go Wheeler and Nolan the first couple of games, and you got guys like Suarez who are looming, this is, I think, a bigger animal for the Diamondbacks to deal with, to be honest with you, even though the Dodgers won 100 games and ran away with the West. You know, the thing that they have in Philly, which is so impressive, is they got a lot of velocity, and they got five different guys that can close it out, and they got a lot of velocity. Interesting, Braves couldn't hit velocity, D-backs can. And that's something that they really worked on, Chris, as a group. And talking to Tori Lovello before games and some of our conversations about just how good of a fastball hitting team they are As you and I talked about that and how good I felt about their chances up against the Dodgers, considering Miller and Lynn rely on the fastball. Well, they work on this. It's not by accident, Chris, that they're a good fastball hitting team. This is something they actually work on. They crank up the velocity machine and they hit against it often. They do it once a homestand. They do it once a road series to get ready for velocity. And so if you're just going to come at them and try to blow them away with 96, 97, good luck because that's what they hit. You have to be dialed in with your off speed. You need to keep them off balance because they can square up the velocity pretty good. Yeah, they're second in batting average against teams that are 97-plus. Pitches 97-plus. They're second in all of baseball and batting average. They're first and on base percentage. So you can say, I'm bringing the fuel at you with the bullpen, uh, and even Wheeler gets it up there. But, you know, we'll see. That's why I, I – and this home field advantage thing, I mean, these numbers don't lie, Roxy. I mean, since Sisson's Bank Park opened up, it's Philly. You've ever been to a game in Philly? I'm talking Eagles. I've never done Sixers. I've never done Flyers, but I know what it's like for Eagles. I know what it's like for Phillies. It's the it's intense. Philly's an intense town. It is. It just is what it is. And they do not lose at at Assistance Bank. It's like I think what what excites me about this is that in the ALCS we've got two teams don't like each other and they know each other so well, right? There's no there. You're in division. You know, you know each other, right? That's just the way it is. Astros Rangers. They know each other. Let's see what you got. This one, the NLCS to me is like two teams that have the it factor, right? They didn't win their divisions. They're red hot. They got everything's going their way and two it factors clash. And when two it factors clash, only one of them's going to win, obviously, Captain Obvious. But that's what I like about it. Both have so much going for. Something's got to give. And you mentioned the road challenges that the Diamondbacks have, have have to deal with in going to Philly. And they've done it so far. There was a strong home field advantage in Milwaukee. 
that that crowd was ready and it didn't phase the Diamondbacks. And we know how it can be a Brewer, for God's sakes. We forgot we had this guy. Bernie, look at this. Bernie Brewer. They took down Bernie Brewer in the house that he built in Milwaukee. And didn't even phase him with the whole huge slide in left field. Right? <laughs> but then you also deal with Dodger Stadium, which is its own animal, right? Yeah. In terms of the, the volume that they crank up and, and the crowd that Yes, they arrive late and they leave early, but they were passionate for the series and they were frustrated when they fell behind in each of the two games. So Arizona has been road tested. And I think, look, we know so much about the Phillies because of their squad and they went to the World Series last year. America really hasn't been introduced to the Diamondbacks until probably, what would you say, Chris, the Dodger series and maybe a little bit in the wild card too. Like, who are these? You know, because they played the Dodgers that really people went, well, you know. But and how are they doing it? It's because, you know, the young players, those veterans, Tommy Pham has always been a really good postseason hitter. Christian Walker's come up with some big hits so far in the postseason. I mean, how crazy was that moment with Gabriel Moreno, right? When they, they called the ball down the right field line foul and after initially saying it was a home run, the umps got together and overturned it and said foul ball. And the very next pitch, he crushes out to left field. That kind of sums up what this team has been about in the postseason, that nothing phases them. And they're going to go to Milwaukee, and yes, it can be – or to Philadelphia, and yes, it can be intimidating in dealing with that crowd. But it, 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 to quote the great Josh Beckett from 20 years ago, we're just young and dumb enough to win this thing. Yeah, and you give Philly a lot of credit. Two straight years, they're doing it again, and led by Bryce Harper. This guy's special. and He's going to have a plaque someday in Cooperstown. And, you know, not every superstar who signs a big contract lives up to the billing, right? A lot of guys can put up regular season numbers, but you put the bright lights and the expectations on them and they don't always come through. Uh, Right now, you want to talk about great Philadelphia athletes. I mean, we can look at anything from Dr. J to to Mike Schmidt. uh, I mean, you're starting to look at people loving them some Bryce Harper. He's living up to the to the billing. And you know, it's funny is when people kind of raise their eyebrows when he signed that contract, right? The length of it, the money that was floated to Harper right now, it might be looking like a deal. The Phillies got to be honest with you to sign him to that deal. What he's produced. I know he's battled some injuries and he's dealt with some things along the way, but he's had so many clutch moments already in his brief tenure with Philadelphia and the Philly fans have embraced him. And the personality that he carries, he seems to be perfect for Philadelphia. But you look at this group, and it's him, and the way they've you talked about the embrace Trey Turner, Castellanos coming on, the emergence of guys like Alec Bohm and Bryson Stott, and certainly JT Real Muto. This is a team that knows how to win. And yes, the regular season, they, they fell well behind Arizona or Atlanta in the division. But they found a way. It all, all we, as we've learned the last number of years, just find your way into the postseason. That's all you got to do. In these short series, anything can happen. And if you can get hot, and a team that's been good for over the the length of the 162 games, the Dodgers have won 100 games for the fourth consecutive full season. The Braves, who did it again, um, but their pitching was both. I thought the Braves and Dodgers pitching was a question going in. When the Braves dealing with the finger issue for Morton and Max Freed, 
If you stumble, this team is just – I think the, that the Phillies are built for the postseason. They're built for the short-term series. As long as they can get in, that's why I think they're so dangerous as they were last year and now again this year. What we're seeing, and we're trying to – we're having fun with this going we crack the code because we, we've had all these people – analytics guys who've said, I don't like the postseason because it's just random. And the more that we've talked about it and dissect it, actually it's the regular season. That's more, more random. You got all of these guys, for example, I keep bringing up the rally monkey. They use 66 players this year, 66. So that means the Astros, the Mariners, the Rangers, all teams vying for the postseason had to play against 66 different dudes that, and look at how many guys played for the, the randomness of, of your 40 man roster. And you got triple a guys coming up and all this kind of stuff you did. But once you hit the postseason, as we finally broke this down with Eno Saris from the athletic is you slim down to the, your very best. So it's not really random. The randomness is 162 games, all the different players used, all the different pitchers, all the traveling, all the BS, all that's gone. There's no randomness between the Astros and the Rangers. You know who's on the 26. No one's coming from AAA. No, you know exactly who's playing. There's a, this is more, this is more of we now know what you got and what we got. There's no fourth and fifth and sixth starters. There's no back of the bullpen guy. No Austin Pruitt stolen tonight, my friends. You're getting the very best of the very best. It's the slim down version of what you got. And that's why when you slim down the Braves and you slim down the Dodgers, you realize their pitching's not that good. And they feasted off bad teams. Well, you're now not facing bad teams. You're facing teams that are raring to go, that got the intensity, they're ready for the fight, and they're not as good as you. That I think we're starting, and we're really going to dissect this in the offseason, but you cover for ESPN regular season and postseason, so you get to experience both. I think there's a little bit overrated when you look, oh, they won 100 games. Well, who'd they win it against? Who are they playing? Who look, look who the Dodgers beat up. They beat up the Rockies. They beat up the Giants. They beat up the Nationals. They beat up the Pirates. That's how the, they they took care of the bad teams. The Dodgers struggled. If you look at their record against the good teams, they struggled against the good teams. And that's why they were flawed going into the postseason, where some of these squads, it, it's funny, it's interesting, this ALCS that we have. If you look at the regular season, the Rangers were dominated by the Astros. Yes. But then you had the Mariners who took care of the Astros and the Rangers dominated the Mariners. So it was like this whole triangle that they had going on. But then you're looking at the first couple of games of this ALCS right now. And with Texas up win winning in game two and winning game one, showing you that the postseason, it doesn't matter because in the regular season, yes, you're built for a three game series. But you don't know when this series starts. Is this bullpen spent? Are they are they rested? Are they tired down there? What pitchers are available? How does it line up like you were talking about? Are we going to get a fourth and fifth starter in this series? That's not happening in the postseason. And the strength at the top of rotations with Arizona, with Gallon and Merrill Kelly, right? And there's questions when you get to three and four, what's going to happen with them? Is Brandon fought? How is he going to handle starting a game three at – Chase Field and Phoenix. Well, he handled game three pretty well against the Dodgers. So once you get to that point, 
I think it's a little bit different in terms of the way you look at the postseasons. Bullpens, who's healthy? Because all of a sudden, the series starts, you have some time off, you can set it up how you want it. And that's a huge advantage for the teams that are top heavy in their rotation. All right, quickly, let's get to some football, get to your college football expertise. Deion Sanders had, has said multiple times, you know where you can find me. He has told everybody, you know how to find me. You know where you can find me. Did Stanford go find him? Uh, unfortunately for Coach Deion Sanders, they did. And give Troy Taylor a lot of credit. <laughs> what, what, Tony, whatever adjustments that, that Troy made at halftime, yeah. were phenomenal. Well, and- I can tell you, I was at the Willow Glen uh, Lee High School football game as my kids were cheering. Okay, and okay. I'm getting, you know, because for all the Bay Area teams, like we do because these damn apps, I get all the updates and I look down. Boop, Stanford's down 29 nothing at half. Stanford's been, you got to remember, Stanford's been playing football, Roxy, for well over 100 years. This is the greatest second half comeback in over 100 years of Stanford football. That's crazy. And to be honest, Chris, I went to sleep. I went to sleep at halftime. I did. I was in Utah. I was getting ready to call Utah and Cal the next day for Pac-12 Network. And so it was like I went to sleep about 1030 Mountain Time. And I wake up to my phone just absolutely lighting up in the middle of the night. Like texts from so many people that you watching this, you see what happened in Boulder. I'm like, no. Then I wake up. I'm like, come on. This didn't really happen. Like I had to go through numerous people to make sure that it actually happened. I didn't believe it when I read it from one person. And what an incredible comeback. And Alec Io Manor, the receiver who established his new Stanford single game record for receiving yards in a game. Look, we knew Colorado had its deficiencies, but I think it goes to show you the strength of the Pac-12, considering the first couple of weeks, they win at TCU, who played for the national championship last year. Then Colorado hammers Nebraska. It shows you the depth of this league that teams, that Stanford, who are thought to be an afterthought in terms of the talent in this league, well, they just went and did what they did on the road in Boulder. And it really is impressive to see and at the same time, sad to see what's happening considering this is the last. How can you not? You got all these blue chip guys. You got all this talent. You're now able to bring in whoever you want with the nil money and all that. How can you not play defense? And last year, they were able to overcome their deficiencies, Chris, on that side of the ball because they were able to generate so many turnovers, right? When you look at their turnover margin last year, they led the country. Yes, they gave up points, and yes, they gave up yards, but they're able to be opportunistic. That's why they were in that position if they'd won the Pac-12 championship game to go to the college football playoff. It was because their defense created turnovers. This year, that's not happening. And Notre Dame spanked them pretty good the other day. And they were the ones committing turnovers. And there were signs that things weren't good with USC. They were able to escape both the Arizona and Arizona State games. And those are teams you would think on paper that they would handle pretty easily. They didn't. Look at the Colorado game a few weeks ago. They had a huge lead but couldn't slam the door. And Colorado made it interesting. That's the problem with USC is defensively, and I don't know the I don't know if there's a disconnect between Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator, and what Lincoln Riley wants to do, but there's a real problem on that side of the ball, and it's reared its ugly head right now, and we're just entering the difficult part of the schedule for USC. The first half was supposed to be the easy part, 
And now well, their leadoff game wasn't easy. No, of course not. When you're you're dealing with you know the the, the Mountain West Conference champs from a couple of years ago, I get it. But even in that game, Chris, as one-sided as people look at the score and they think it was, it really wasn't because San Jose State moved the ball pretty well against him in that game. Oh, no doubt. At halftime, they, they were pretty quiet. It was yeah. a legit game, yeah. Are you going to the game Saturday at Spartan Stadium? Yes, I am. I will be there. I think I might. I have a TV bye week this week. Um, I had the opportunity to do a national radio game, and I said I want a weekend at home because I've been gone so much recently and my bosses showed some compassion for me and said okay it's fine all right so so quickly yeah quickly you're a heisman voter yeah how we i mean is this thing like seriously up for grab i mean where 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 are we with the heisman it's kind of all over the joint It, it is and i don't really zero in on how i'm ranking guys until november i want to let it play out then a couple of weeks i'll really hunker down and figure out who needs to be at the top of my list. And we came into the season, Caleb Williams, the returning Heisman winner with all he's done for USC. Certainly last Saturday's performance is going to hurt him. But you look at what Michael Penix is doing at Washington. And even his receiver, Roma Dunze, who's been phenomenal. Um, I think that Bo Nix, even with their loss in Seattle, what a game that was. Uh, that came down, you feel, for Oregon losing on a field goal that just missed that could have tied the game. But what a phenomenal football game that was on Saturday, and it wouldn't shock me if we saw Oregon and Washington meet again in the Pac-12 championship game in Vegas. All right, buddy. Have a good week. Enjoy these baseball games, and we'll talk to you next week. You got it, Tony. The great Roxy Bernstein from ESPN. The great Sarah Langs is with us here on A's Cast Live. Always a treat to have you on the program. And it's like every single day I'm watching baseball. It's whether I'm watching Fox, whether I'm watching TBS, of course, FS1, and then I'm watching MLB Network. It's like you're everywhere. You are everywhere. It's unbelievable. Like your tweets are like they, they're – it's like they're just following you. It's like you're the content provider for Major League Baseball. How are you? I'm doing great. And hey, I'm trying my best. I mean, there's been so much going on every year at this time of year. It's just everything all at once. And I love it. I live for it. You know, this is what we work for all year. And I just love to be able to showcase all the amazing things going on. You know, we were just talking off the air, and it's pretty interesting because the home field advantage now at Citizen Banks Park, I mean, my God, their record there is just unbelievable. It By winning percentage, uh, X amount of games, it's the best home field advantage we've ever seen in Major League Baseball. And last year you were there. And you saw them lose two games. It's hard to believe like they could like they're five and zero at home this year. It's like hard to believe they could even lose at home last year. I mean, it makes no sense. You know, that first game at Citizen Bank, they did win. But then after that, I mean, I was sitting there. I saw Christian Javier and Brian Bray and Ryan Presley. No hit the Phillies in that house. And even sitting there and even watching now, I have no idea how that happened. I mean, I cannot imagine being a visiting player 
walk in and blame them. And I know Troy Lovello said all the right things, and I agree with him 100%. And I know they pumped in crowd noise in Arizona and they prepared, but I have no idea how you march in there and win games in October. It just seems impossible. Yeah, it's more than just we can look at numbers, and there's plenty of numbers to look at. I mean, they don't give up runs. They hit a ton of home runs. I mean, there's a lot, but there's something special about these guys. They are just relentless. I mean, every hitting coach in the world hates when you swing at the first pitch. These guys crush the first pitch. It's uh, They're swinging at the first pitch and doing well with it more than probably any team we've ever seen in the postseason. There's But – Forget the numbers, Sarah. There's just something. It's just they're relentless. There's just something about whether it's on the road or at home, especially at home, but just what are you seeing with this team? It's just special. I mean, they have this kind of team of destiny vibe. You know, this was the team that got to the World Series last year when nobody other than them saw it coming. They went out in the offseason. They added Trey Turner. They're so much better than they were on paper at this point last year. And I think this is a team that we very likely may see come and do what the Astros just did. And what we saw the Royals do back in 2015, getting back to the World Series the year after losing, and then come back and win it all that following year. I mean, they just seem to be on another plane on another playing field, however you want to say. It's almost like they're playing a different game. They're interacting in a different way, and it's really a joy to watch. Of course, every game is different. You know, one thing a lot of people aren't talking about is that Philly has the best ERA in October at 1.60. Everybody talks about the home runs and everything, and Castellanos is, and no one's done this since Reggie Jackson, and, oh, my God, Bryce Harper on his birthday, and I bet, but, their pitching has been unreal. I thought important, though, was that Arizona did mount a comeback. And they did score some runs. How important is this game for Arizona to get one in Philly before they head back to the desert? Oh, very vitally important. I agree. I mean, the game felt over in the first inning. So to be able to mount that comeback, to be able to see the stress on the Philly fans' faces mm-hmm. in those final two innings, that is hugely important, especially for a young team on the whole, that many of them are in this situation for the first time. Guys like Corbin Carroll really figuring out how to carry yourselves in this situation. And I thought they said and did all the right things. They did not simply lie down. After that person, which is very, very important. And we know, I mean, if you're able to split those first two games, you're going home. They had a huge home field advantage, too. You know, on that list of the best records by ballpark with a minimum of 20 games, Chase Field is third on that list. The Diamondbacks had Chase Field our third there. It was very loud there in the one game they played so far at home. And I think if they're able to get there in the split, it would change everything now. We'll see if it's possible. Again, you come back to everything about this Philly team. 
but I'm so glad to see that the Nymechs did make it closer just for their own peace of mind. Well, it's funny. We talk about home field advantage, and then we flip it over to the team that's completely opposite of that is the Houston Astros. And I know a lot of people, I mean, this is our division. This is this is our side of the street. This is where we live, right, in the AL West. They're horrible at home. So it shouldn't shock anybody that the Rangers have got in there and taken two games. If you look at the season series, Houston dominated Texas at Globe Life. Houston just doesn't play well this season for whatever reason. They don't play well at home, so they lose the first two games, and we have all these numbers. You lose the first two games, you're in dire straits. But reality is Houston is not done by any stretch of the imagination because where do they win and where do they excel this year? Hard to believe, sir, but it is on the road. It is. And, you know, no team has ever reached the World Series with as bad of a home record as the Astros had this year. Wow. So to your point, I was not surprised to see them drop those two games, even though it isn't the capital A Astros that we've been used to over the last few years. It wasn't surprising, and I agree. That's why they aren't necessarily done yet. But remember that series for Hotel Tube. I believe set a record what homering in like five straight innings over the course of two days and they scored all of those runs. That series between the Astros and Rangers was at Globe Life Field and your former uh, you know, former A's friend Marcus Demian was saying that in the postgame yesterday. He was saying we know how tough they played us at our own ballpark. So I don't think Bruce Bochy's team will be heading home thinking, oh, too well, we have this set, we're all good. But certainly, this is not the Astros team we're used to seeing. When we know they have that firepower, and I really think we may see it come out on the road over these next few days. Marcus Simeon is the greatest example of, you know, these guys are human beings. They have lives outside of the ballpark, even though we just view them like we think they're in their uniforms 24-7 and they play baseball with his beautiful wife having their fourth child during these playoffs. I'm just trying to think about when I had my kids and you're, you're like, having a baby, it's stressful. There's a lot going on. And even when it's a perfect birth, there's a lot going on. And uh, just to think that Marcus Simeon having his fourth child, got four kids now. I mean, this is, and you're having during the playoffs, it just shows that uh, there's a lot going on other sometimes than, than just baseball. What's going to be, what could be interesting here is the potential to play three straight days for the Rangers. Now, I predicted the Rangers. That's why we got old Nolan Ryan out here. Uh, You you know how much we hate the Astros. Um, So I I don't like either of them, but, you know, you got to pick one. I'm going to go with the Texas Rangers. You have the potential for the Rangers to play three straight days. And it's basically been Montgomery, Evaldi, LeClerc, and Spores. The rest has kind of been, if Bochy's got to use them, hold on. He might have to use more of his staff here in these next three games. It could get a little more interesting, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, they've been able to get as far as they have, in part because they've been able to sort of shield their bullpen. And to the bullpen's credit, they've pitched well. This does not look like the team that, 
blew more saves during the regular season than they actually converted. They were the first team ever to make the postseason with a sub-50% save percent. But Bruce Bochy, the postseason bullpen whisperer, and Nathan Evaldi, Jordan Montgomery, everyone else being able to go deep for them has really saved them. But to your point, I mean, Jose Leclerc yesterday became the first pitcher in postseason history to finish each of his team's first seven games of a single postseason. If this goes into a fifth game, it seems very hard to believe that he could extend that all the way to 10 with the fact that those three games would all be in a row. So you start to get into other options. You lack guys like Jordan Alvarez, face relievers multiple times, and that's when it can get really, really dicey. I saw you put that out on Twitter yesterday, and I'm like, how does she find this? <laughs> I mean, all the we've been playing playoff baseball for well over 120 years, and when you mentioned LeClerc had finished every game and he's the only guy to do that, I was like, oh, my God. Uh, when you look at certain numbers, these are simple numbers, right? You out-homer the other team. You, the teams are 16-2. and two. I thought this one, I always think it's interesting because it really plays in baseball and football. The team that scores first, the team that scores first is 18-7. and seven. That's a 7.20 winning percentage. Do you ever get amazed by just like the most, because you're always looking at some pretty, pretty high-end data stats for us and percentages and everything. I mean, just sometimes the simple stuff, does it ever amaze you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every night after the games, I update those two numbers that you said, the scoring first, the out-home rank, and then the other one I do with that is the percentage of runs to score via the home run. And to your point, I mean, even though we go in on so many specific things, there's such basic tenets that really seem to show out year in and year out in the postseason. So as you said, our ring opponents were 16-2. Last year's teams went 22-6. and six. If you go back to the start of the 2018 postseason, that winning percentage is around 860, I believe, right now. So it's a very simple thing. We talk about contact. We talk about pitching and defense and what have you. Over these last five or six years, you hit more home runs than your opponent, you win the game in the playoffs. And, of course, pitching is a big part of that. Part of how you hit more home runs than your opponent is not allowing those on the other end, right? But I love the scoring first as well because it's so simple, but we don't see many of those big comebacks with him. Minus maybe a few exceptions, of course, that Mariners game in Toronto last year is still etched in my mind when they came back from some runs. But for the most part, teams that get ahead, they stay ahead, they maintain those leads. And you mentioned that winning percentage in the 700s in the regular season, scoring first, you win about a 665 clip. So the other really important thing about all of these trends trends to me is the fact that these are things that matter in the regular season, but in the postseason, they're even more important. 
the winning percent when you outshopping your opponent, when you score first, those all go up in the postseason because these teams are so good. They're able to maintain whatever those leads are. Has there been, let's end on this, has there been anything that has surprised you? I mean, everything, right? Nick Castellanos <laughs> becoming the first guy in postseason history with back-to-back multi-hour games. Yeah. With the 1,766th game in postseason history. Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, you name it. And it's Nick Castellanos the first guy to do that. That's probably the number one surprising and really, really exciting stat for me. Yeah, and he's got a son there, and there's always the other side of it with the family. That's great stuff. Uh, I I know for you and your battle right now, we want our fans to be a part of it with you because you've meant so much to this program. Where would you like us to donate? Because that's really the key right now. Where would you like us to reach out and, and be able to help? Where can we donate? Where where do you, where should we go? I mean, the number one thing I always say with this, and thank you for asking, is that people should donate somewhere that really means something to them. There's so many different aspects of the fight against ALS or organizations that help patients who are currently fighting, and then there are organizations that are doing scientific research. For me, the research is the number one thing, the same way I do with baseball, of course. And one organization I've worked with has named Project ALS, but there are so many others out there. I know there's a great organization led by the Piscotti family. I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but that may mean something extra to Ace fans. So I'd say, if you are interested, do a quick search and find the organization that speaks to you best because there's so many different organizations that are coming at this from so many different angles and everything really truly does help. Well, I got to tell you, I know it puts a big smile on my face. It's got to put a big smile on your face when you're just sitting there and you're watching the TBS and it's Granderson and J-Roll and Pedro Martinez. Now they got Albert Pujols and they go, Sarah Lang's on Twitter or it's MLB now. Sarah Lang, and it puts a huge smile on my face. What's it like for you watching where it's like, there's my work and I'm on national television? I mean, just like everything else, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> you know, I grew up watching all of this. I was a little kid watching everyone else the teams in the playoffs. Finally seeing my team there in 2006 when I was growing up as a Mets fan. But I was always taking all of the media I could, reading stories, everything else. So... It doesn't even make sense to me whatsoever, and I'm now part of this, but I am so, so grateful. Well, we love you. You mean a lot to this program. Enjoy the postseason. I know you're loving every minute, and we'll talk soon, and it will be about the World Series. Yes, it will. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we had to look up. 1994. Hit 311. He's a tall shortstop. He goes from dominating the 
would have been the Pac-10 then. To the no first. less. You were the Pac-8. Six pack. You weren't the six pack. You're not old enough. Uh, and then oh, do- yeah, I am. And then dominated the Vermont Expos. You hit 344 with an 880 OPS. Your first time with the wood bat and pro ball. That's impressive. Thank you. And you got you know what's crazy about that? I was only I was only three years into my uh life's life uh, my my life as a switch hitter. Really? Yeah. So you were in the mold of back when, you know, we were Everybody was trying to find Cal Ripken Jr. again. Everybody wanted the tall shortstop, right? Do you, A-Rod, all the big guys, they wanted big guys at shortstop. Like, now we're not seeing a whole heck of a lot of that anymore. Like, because back then, being 6'3", 6'2", the people didn't have a problem with that playing short. No, and I'm grateful for that. If if they'd had the issue, uh, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. But, uh, you know, all the thanks to Bob Milano and the University of California for giving me the opportunity to play shortstop every day. Uh, I had to earn my spot my freshman year in 92, but I was just learning how to switch hit. So if I had never learned how to switch hit and kept my uh, ability to play shortstop, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. So everything goes back to my roots there at Cal. Yeah, you you have very respectable freshman numbers, too, to come out of high school and uh, put up the numbers that you had. By the way, your Cal football team has won more games than people thought they would so far this year. Yeah, who knew the Pac-12 would be as good as they are right now? Yeah. God, it's so hard to believe that. It is. Everything that's going on that – there's only going to be two teams left and where it goes from here. uh, Does anybody – because I know in those neck of the woods where you are now – I mean, they're still starting to get used to, like, wait a minute, we're not going to have Texas, Oklahoma, Red River shootout anymore. They're going to be in the SEC. People in Houston have kind of gotten you, because I know A&M's not too far, that they're in the SEC. Are, are people in Texas starting to get used to this? Because they people back in, back in the day, when they were the Southwestern Conference, they hated the SEC. Now they're all in mm-hmm. the SEC. No, that's the crazy thing. And I've, you know, I've had to get a crash course in what's going on out here with Texas football, just because uh, being on the West Coast, uh, it's a different vibe and a different, uh, you know, mentality. But at the same time, you know, I think A&M, since being in the SEC, had talked a lot of trash on, you know, UT and Oklahoma and, and, you know, the Baylors and the TCUs out there saying, oh, we're in the tougher conference. You guys would never compete up here. And now all of a sudden with all this shifting, a and is going to have to deal with the UT and the OU. But uh, like you said, you know, some of these rivalry games will now become conference games, which is kind of crazy to think about. So we we don't, we, as you know, we have Eno Saris on this program every single week, and we don't try and be like the smartest show. But I got to tell you, I think we've kind of cracked something because there's in recent years, and it really started with the A's and Moneyball and Billy Bean, this whole mm-hmm. what we do in the regular season, it doesn't work in the postseason, the postseason's a crapshoot. And I, I, we've kind of cracked it going, no, it's the other way around. When you're using the Atlanta Braves have the best record in baseball and they use 53 players, you have the Angels use. We've been joking because we got this Shohei Otani thing. We got the. I still. I still got a rally monkey here. Um, they use sixty six players. The regular season has become so random with the amount of players in the line. 
The postseason, as you know, as a World Series champion, as a hero, is you zero in. It's the best players. It's your best pitchers. It's really your best effort. The regular season is you're using so many guys, you're 40 man, so many players. That, to me, is the randomness. We're now, and I think this series right here tells you everything you need to know. There is zero random between the Astros and the Rangers. <laughs> you guys know everything. We know everything about you guys. You guys mm-hmm. know everything about each other. There's no randomness. Uh, just talk about that because they've been trying to sell like, oh, postseason, I don't know, it's just a bunch of luck. I'm saying my ass. These teams know each other. <laughs> this is the best of the best. You're getting the best version of the Astros. You're getting the best version of the Texas Rangers. Same thing with Philly in Arizona. No, I agree with you on that. And that's what's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, we keep hearing, uh, you know, there has to be an adjustment. This wild card round gives that, uh, you know, gives that first round by to the division winners with the best record. It's too much time off. They don't know how to adjust. And all I keep hearing when I keep hearing that noise is, that's an excuse for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Why can't we watch the Dodgers more often? And I feel like they haven't been able to adjust to that. But if you go back and look at the history of how well they've played in this inside that division, what have they done in the postseason? They've played well enough and had and been analytically sound to be able to win as many games as possible. But like you were just saying, when you get into the postseason, what happens then? because the Astros are a team that was built to be able to win during the regular season, but they also do a very good job of winning in the postseason. And I think that's where you start to create that separation from analytics and you start to turn to that baseball side that I think you're talking about with the Texas Rangers and the Houston Astros, just in the sense that you create that, you know, that familiarity and you create uh, these books on each other where you have, you know, their tendencies, you know, what's going to happen later in the game. Bruce Bochy knows Dusty Baker as well as Dusty Baker knows Bruce Bochy. And that's kind of the fun of the game is realizing how they're going to use their bullpens, who's going to come off the bench. But at the same time, these are two teams that have set lineups, maybe one or two pieces like an Evan Carter out there in left field that moves out for a Robbie Grossman with a left-handed starter. Or you've got a Chaz McCormick or a Mauricio Dubon that comes in depending on who's on the mound for the Astros. But other than that, it's pretty straightforward with what's going on, and they're strong enough and knowledgeable enough to know how these matchups are going to work. And I think that's what makes it most fun for me when you do get it this late into the postseason into a championship series is that you have that familiarity, but how do you work through that to be able to beat the team? And right now the Texas Rangers have figured out the Astros. You're the perfect guy to bring on about this because we have so many different guests, and I can't ask them about what it's like to win a World Series. Well, with you, you went to the pinnacle in college baseball. You played in the College World Series at Cal. You won the World Series with the Chicago White Sox. Did did you get the feeling in those years, it doesn't matter where we play. It doesn't matter what the schedule is. I don't care where you play, what time of day you want to play, what stadium, what part of the state, what time zone. You bring it, we're going. Tell people – because all this noise and excuses when, when, when you're – like the, the Chicago White Sox, did you feel like hey, we'll take on anybody, anywhere, anytime, any stadium, let's rock? That That is what you can't put into an algorithm is that idea right there of getting 25 to 26 guys to buy in and understand that when the bell rings and that first pitch of the game is happening that all of a sudden doesn't matter where we came from, who we liked, who we don't like – all of a sudden we're in that batter's box with each other. We are on that mound with each other. We're making that play in center field and we're all going to high five you when you come off the field because 
we dislike the opponent that much more than we dislike everybody in our own clubhouse <laughs> that we're going to go out there and try and destroy you. And that was kind of the uniqueness of the Chicago White Sox is that you get on the plane and there would be seven or eight factions, you know, having a good time, whether it be radio, playing cards, drinking, telling stories, or just hamming it up. But once that game started and once you put on that Chicago White Sox uniform, we just went out there and played like we were meant and molded and, you know, just welded together to go out there and be this well-tuned machine. But you're right in the sense that, um, you know, we we ran through uh, Boston pretty good in that first round. They were the reigning World Series champions from the year before, uh, took them in three. And then we had a pretty substantial break before the Angels came in. And they they kicked us in the teeth, actually, in that first game of this championship series. And then we proceeded to watch our pitching staff go out there and throw four complete games Three of or two of them being in, or three of them being in Anaheim. So it, what, like what you're saying, that? it just didn't matter. What is that? What? What is that? <laughs> that's that's Ozzie Guillen going up to his starting rotation and going, boys, I'm going to ride you as long. It sounds terrible. Ride ride you as long and, and as hard as I can till we win this series. And what our pitching staff did is they just went out there and threw 130 pitches until yeah. our offense scored enough runs to win, and we walked away. It, it, I mean, it's crazy to think that it was you know, what, 18 years ago. And that was the mentality was just force our rotation to pitch as long as they possibly could. And then four straight complete games, we're back in the World Series and absolutely obliterate the Astros in that in that series. And your pitching pit, your starters. I mean, Cody, what's the record right now? Six six innings or more right now if your starting pitcher goes in the postseason? 12 and three. 12 and three. I mean, as much as we want to, obviously home runs are great. Thank you for that. Home runs are great. Velocity of the bullpen's great. All of that's great, but you need to get innings from your starters. It's tried and true. You got to get it. it. It makes your bullpen so much better, and that's something that we saw, obviously, the year that we won in 2005. But how about last year in 2022 with the Astros? Their rotation was stacked. They mm-hmm. pitched six innings, and all of a sudden, you only had to go out there and get nine outs. And, I mean, that that alleviates a lot of pressure on that bullpen and allows those arms to be fresh. Even if they're throwing 15 pitches a night, it still allows them to go out there and be relatively fresh, especially in a postseason. Can you imagine being able to blow your bullpen out for two days, have a day off, blow them out for a couple more days, have that day off? I mean, this really sets up in the postseason for the teams that are able to extend their starters and use their bullpen wisely to go out there and win some championships. 0-2 at home, heading on the road in a best of seven, normally means you're done. But for the Houston Astros, as Cody's been joking the whole time, Astros got them right where they want them. Like, I, 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 <laughs> He's right. It's like historical this year how bad the Astros have been at home. I mean, they won almost every game against the Rangers at Globe Life. So it's like, folks, this series is far from over because you tell me, why is it can't win at home and they're beast on the road? It's crazy to me, and I I wish I could explain it because we've actually put up plenty of numbers where I think they're scoring a run more on the road as opposed to at home, but the crazy thing about being at home is everybody wants to point to the offense. They say, the batter's eye is too small. They can't see. They're not able to, you know, score runs. They're trying to hit too many home runs at home. Um, But on the other side of the coin is the pitching staff has been terrible at home too. So it's not a one-sided thing. This is a full, a full team effort to be that bad at home. And they're, they're one of the few division winners that go out there and win a division with a losing record at home. And I think I heard a number the other day that said, nobody's gone to the world series with a losing record at home. And the Astros are trying to accomplish that. 
But to your point about, uh, you know, Arlington, 13 and three, the Astros are at that ballpark in the last two years. And they are six and one this season at that ballpark. And they're going in there after the last time they were in there for three games, they scored 39 runs and held the Texas Rangers to 10 runs. And granted, that was without Josh Young. Jonah Heim came out of that uh, middle of that series with uh, a wrist injury, I believe. And now you've got everybody at full strength. It's going to be a little bit different. But the first thing, I don't know if you guys heard any of Dusty's uh, press conference today, but one of the things that kind of slipped through the cracks and that nobody really jumped on is that he said, my boys see the ball great here. And that was the one thing that jumped out to me is that kind of feeds the narrative back home where the Astros, there's a lot going on behind the center field wall. The batter's eye isn't as big as everybody wants it to be. And then they get on the road and they see the ball better. And all of a sudden they go out and start to rake. But I think it's a combination of Rangers pitching staff and being able to see that ball better. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, you go and win that first game, and then all of a sudden that narrative now, the belief that, hey, we can we can <laughs> smoke these guys here. And if I'm looking at it from the Astros' perspective, you basically have had four pitchers for the Rangers dominate the innings. You've had Montgomery, you've had Avaldi, you've had LeCurk and Spores. Now, mm-hmm. you, now you're going to have three straight games. Bruce Bochy is going to have to dip into the other parts of that pitching staff I think for, you know, if we're looking at keys to the game, get to these other guys that haven't pitched for the Astros, and that can play well for you because, you know, Bochy really doesn't want to use those guys. No, you're 100% correct. I mean, that's something that, you know, everybody here in Houston has been barking about is that it's paramount to knock the starter out as soon as possible because you name those guys, you know, Spores has been good. LeClerc has been good in the, in that bullpen, but that's two guys out of seven or eight guys in that bullpen. You know, you got to force Bochy's hand to go to somebody else in that bullpen. We did see a Chapman pitch well in game one, but obviously he showed up quick enough in game two when he gave up that home run to Jordan Alvarez. And it almost felt like, it almost felt like uh, Bochi was trying to force Chapman into the situation just to kind of break the seal and see where he's at. And as soon as he gave up that home run, he popped out of the dugout, brought him out of the game because he didn't want Aroldis to lose that game. So he's still kind of questionable on him. But I agree with you in the sense if they're able, and that's where I'm kind of curious about Scherzer and John Gray in this series being added to that roster. Um, we don't know how far they've been stretched out. They haven't pitched in a competitive game middle of September how are they going to react to the situation and what happens if the Astros actually get to those guys then what and once you start getting Bochy you know trying to get that big old body and that skull out of that dugout to go back and forth from from the mound to the dugout that's where you create issues for the Rangers and that's where the Astros have to capitalize by knocking starters out quickly everybody talks about Bochy's just different as a communicator as a leader you played for him What's it like playing for him? I, I loved it. Uh, you know, he, he's a he's a motivator, but he's also he's got a sense of humor about him. He's got a humility about him. Uh, you know, he was a guy who was a backup catcher who had flashes of brilliance throughout his big league career and, you know, had to really grind things out, but became a student of the game, but never lost that sense of what it was like to be a player. And that's where I appreciated him for my time in San Diego because he was notorious. He wouldn't come up to you and say, you know, you had an idea what your role was on the team, but Boach would come over and go, hey, 
I, you know, I've got a set infield blummer. I know you can play all four infield positions. These guys are going to need days off. Guys are going to get hurt. Just stay ready, and I'll, I'll get you in there. I'll find a way to get you in there. And what Boach did that was so good for me and some of these guys that are on the peripheral, you know, on the bench and role players, is the fact that he was able to put me in there, uh, you know, in blowouts. If we were blowing a team out or if we were getting blown out, he'd fire me out there for two at-bats and, you know, just to make sure I was staying fresh. Uh, if he knew I was uh, there was a starting pitcher in that series, he would come to me before the series. He'd be like, I know your number's against this guy. You're going to be playing against him. So he was, he was adamant about staying up to date and keeping everybody fresh and giving, you know, regulars days off giving some role players some opportunities to put up numbers. But that's where I think Boach was really good. And, uh, you know, we were spoiled in uh, San Diego. We had a pretty good starting rotation, you know, led by Jake Peavy. And then we had Trevor Hoffman closing things out. So it was very routine-oriented. But at the same time, I think Boachy understands what those roles mean for guys as far as preparation. And that's how guys got better. You don't have probably any questions why he's been successful in San Diego. Got him to a World Series in 98, won three titles in San Francisco, and has another chance now. He's two games away from getting another franchise to the World Series. I mean, as someone who played for him, it probably doesn't surprise you at all. No, and you know what? I had a chance to you know speak with Chris Young, who was a teammate with me on San Diego, who played under you know Boach. And uh, they have a great relationship, but I thought it was really interesting because the first thing I wanted to know, you know, why is Bochi getting back in this thing? (laughs) This day and age with the analytics, the old school and the grind of travel and, you know, the way this game is is being played these days, why would he want to come back into this mix? And even why would Chris Young want to bring one of these old school guys back? And uh, I thought it was really interesting in talking to Chris Young when he says, you know, Bochi had some time off to really kind of recharge the batteries, kind of, you know, give the body a tune-up. And I think once that body started to feel a little bit better, the mind starts to react, the heart feels a little bit better, and you miss the competition. And he got him back in the dugout. And I think it's really starting to feed on these guys where they're starting to, you know, feel the vibe of Boach. And when you have three World Series championships under your belt and you come into a situation like the Texas Rangers Clubhouse, why wouldn't you look up to that and respect that and want to play hard for a guy who has been to the peak three times? You would want to play behind that guy. All right, so we know the Astros are not out of this. They they excel on the road, but you got to give the Rangers a lot of credit. They have not lost in the postseason. They've outscored their opponents 39 to 16, and so much of their damage has been done by 7-8-9. I mean, this entire lineup, <laughs> just talk about what you've seen, especially here watching the postseason. Evan Carter made his debut against the A's, and we were like, hey, this kid. I mean, they – Oh, man. And, and the young count comes back at third base. Just one through nine, this is no day at the beach. I mean, everybody can swing it. No, shoot, the toughest guy in this lineup in this two, these first two games has been Laody Tavares, the nine-hole hitter. I think they've gotten him out maybe twice. I think it's actually once. Um, and he's got a home run in the series already, and uh, he's played extremely well. But like you said, you know, this lineup is stacked, one through nine. Um, and I th- it, it's reminiscent of lineups that I've seen in the past for the Astros where you cannot take a break 
And kind of what you're seeing with the Baltimore Orioles, what you're kind of seeing with the Astros is so much of the emphasis is on one through six and even, you know, one through four, because the two guys that I want to be able to control and not let beat me are going to be the be Corey Seager and Adolis Garcia. Those guys absolutely mash. They drive the ball out of the ballpark. They're high RBI guys. And the Astros have actually done a very good job of containing both those guys, holding them to base hits, keeping them inside the ballpark. And that should be a, re- you know, a remedy to win ball games. But at the same time, like you're saying, you've got Josh Young, who's been pushed down in that lineup. Jonah Himes down there. He hit a big home run the other day. And then Laoti Tavares, we can't seem to get that guy out. But when you have seven, eight, nine going well, you're playing with fire because when those guys are on base and you start to turn it over to a Marcus Simeon, a Corey Seager and some of these other guys, Mitch Garver, who's been swinging the bat well, then you're putting yourself in some serious uh, issues. And I think that's why uh, the Astros starting pitching, you know, granted Justin Verlander did a great job, but Framber Valdez could not find himself way, couldn't find his way through that lineup because those guys at the bottom of the order were doing so well. And he wasted so many pitches trying to get through those one, two, three, four in the top part of the order. Uh, they're doing a good job. Philly is amazing. Just everything going on with them right now, right? I mean, it's just they're my, my word for them is relentless. The crowd's yeah. relentless. The team's relentless. You throw that first pitch over, they're looking to take you out of the yard. I mean, they are just on you constantly. Uh, you're a former D-back. Uh, I, I thought them scoring a couple runs there and making it close, that, that that's good for them. How big is tonight for – Arizona not going home down 0-2? Um, I think it always is. You know, you want to develop a little bit of momentum and everybody talks about happy flights. If you can get onto that plane with a split on the road in a place like Philadelphia, like you're talking about, where you're playing against a team that's absolutely possessed right now, playing great baseball, and then you have the fan atmosphere on top of it. If you can scratch out one win on the road in Philadelphia, uh, it sets up beautifully for that championship series if you're able to win three games at home in front of your fans, in your own environment, sleeping in your own bed kind of thing, the exact opposite of what the Astros are trying to do. But the Diamondbacks have a chance to really you know, spoil that homestand for the Phillies if they're able to sneak those two, one of those two games and kind of set up for what they're able to do at home because that team's kind of built more for that AstroTurf, big gaps, speed game, play good defense, and use that pitching uh, to play well at home. So yeah, I think it's paramount that they have to go out there and win because nobody wants to go home 0-2, uh, you know, especially against a team that was in the World Series last year. So you talk about the experience where the Diamondbacks don't have that experience. I think they'd really like to be tied up 1-1 going home without some of these guys having that experience because there is going to be a certain level of comfort playing in front of the faithful in Phoenix. I have this note for you, and I want you to think of all your old hitting coaches from the time you were a kid all the way through the big leagues the phillies have swung at 57.9 percent of first pitches in the zone this postseason the highest rate of any team in october and i bet that's the highest ever 57.9 percent you throw it in the zone they're not waiting to get down 01 0212 how many of your hitting coaches would have flipped out First pitch, you roll over it, ground it out. First pitch, you pop it up. (laughs) How many times do they tell you do not swing at the first pitch, and yet the Phillies are doing the exact opposite, which basically – Every hitting coach forever has told you to do. (laughs) First of all, that number's ridiculous. Right? That's that's incredible. 
Um, but how about how about the fact that 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 number right there is sitting there staring at every pitcher that comes into the game against the Philadelphia Phillies? So what does that tell me? That either tells me I've got to throw something absolutely filthy on the first pitch so that they don't, you know, absolutely obliterate it. Or on the other hand, I've got to be just on the edge. I can't make a mistake here, right here. And guess what happens? I try to be a little bit too fine and I leave it out over the plate and it gets hammered. I think there's an there's a certain level of intimidation knowing that when these guys dig in, they've got a toehold looking to do damage. But I also like the idea, you know, and I did have a lot of pitching coaches that said, you know, the first pitch may not be the first, the best pitch of the at bat. So be patient, work the count. You'll get something later in the count. That was always the mentality. And we had a situation the other day. A Roldis Chapman came in and Alex Bregman swung at the first pitch fastball and popped up, and everybody in the stadium went, Oh, you know, what is he doing? Be patient. You but know, Altuve does it and hits it out, and everybody's like, That's awesome. Well, two batters later, Jordan Alvarez takes a slider first pitch and hits it 420 yeah. feet. And we're like, yeah, that a boy, you know, so it's like, <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. But, uh, you know, there is something to be said when you do get into the postseason, you're obviously facing better pitching. So I like the idea of kind of being ready to hit early on, because sometimes with some of these pitchers that you're facing, like a Zach Gallon or some of the, you know, a Spencer Strider and some of these guys, they, they look to get ahead early to take control of the at bat but if you're taking control of the at bat the second you step in and put in that pitcher on the on his heels you get it's the advantage to the hitter because this guy's scared to death to leave something out of the plate first pitch and i can hammer it all right let's end on this because we will get into this in the off season where we start addressing a lot of different topics and one thing we always get into is hall of fame and i want to talk about a guy that you played with and i know he means a lot to you paul Konerko. And mm. I remember I was at Candlestick Park when Paul Konerko was <laughs> traded from the Dodgers to the Reds. He walked off the field. Remember old Candlestick? He had to walk down the right oh, field man, line. Yeah. All of a sudden, Paul Konerko is walking out of this, and it's like he just got traded. I was there when he was traded. Um, really? 16 years in Chicago, 406 home runs as a White Sox. You look at his entire numbers. You look at his OPS. You look at his OPS plus. 18 years in the big leagues. You know him very well. I, you can make a case, wouldn't you say, that Paul Konerko should have a plaque in Cooperstown? 100%. Uh, and obviously, this is going to be heavily biased just because I absolutely love the human being. But you know but him. You played with him. Yes. And I, and I know, I mean, I know what went on underneath in order to get on the field to do, to put up the numbers he was, he was putting up. Um, you know, you think about the 16 years he was in Chicago, he has that world series title. He's been an all-star. Uh, he was a high average, high on, but he was an OPS guy before OPS even existed. And he actually spoke in those terms. We didn't know what an OPS was, but at the same time, Paulie was a guy that was going out there really he was studying pitchers he was studying swings he made some of the he made more adjustments to his swing than I think any prolific hitter I've ever been around has uh, he would constantly be tinkering in the cage he would constantly be talking to you about your swing he would watch your at bats he, I mean he was incredibly cerebral and he would go out there and put swings on uh, on pitchers that were absolutely filthy in some of the best moments of the, of the game, the key moments in the game. So a lot of the numbers that he put up while he was there in Chicago, where he was the guy year in, year out, every time you faced the Chicago White Sox, there were some good guys that throughout the years, you know, the Maglio Ordonezes, the Carlos Lees, and some of the, you know, the Jermaine Dyes. But he was always the focal point of the White Sox lineup. 
And he went out there and performed day in, day out, loved playing a first base, didn't want to DH, uh, you know, as least as he as he wanted to, and really did a good job of driving in runs. And one of the things, and just to make everybody love Paul Konerko just a little bit more, is uh, when I got traded over there in 2005 from the Padres at the deadline, I show up in uh, Baltimore. And to a man, credit to everybody on that roster too, to a man, every one of them came over and shook my hand and said, you ready to fight? And I said, hell yeah, let's go. Paul Konerka was the guy that was after the game on the flight going back to Chicago. He goes, do you have a place to stay? He goes, do you have a car? And I was like, nope, nope. I go, I'm going to stay at the hotel, whatever the team gives me. And then, you know, I've got to figure it out from there. The second day I was in Chicago, the second day of that homestand, I was a Chicago White Sox. He had me, he had a studio apartment lined up for me and a, and a, and a car dealership giving me a car. So this dude is gold and I would love to see him be able to be rewarded for working as hard as he did in the city of Chicago for as long as he did by having a plaque made for him. I think he's awesome. He's like the mob, whatever you need, I got, you need, you need a car, Do, hey, you need a place, you need, there, what do you need? There's a reason Paul Konerko's name was the king. And he, you know, PK, he was the king. We just said, "Yep, that's the king." And you're exactly right. It was it was so fitting that he wore the you know that that uh, old English socks on his hat, and the connection might have been there. I don't know. I love it. All right, you're the best, my <laughs> friend. And uh, Astros keep winning. Let's talk soon. Hey, I don't care. You know, I can't say I don't care what they do, but I mean, no matter what happens, I would love to be able to well, talk to you. World guys Series, anytime. we got to have you for the World Series. Yeah, I'd love to hang out with that. Yeah, heck yeah. I mean, I'm down. The World Series. The American League West is going to be represented somehow, some way. Technically, the World Series is your time of the year. You're a World Series hero. <laughs> yeah, that's usually when I perk up. Yeah. Uh, has anybody seen my statue? Has anybody seen? I don't have a statue. Yeah, that's the, that's the only thing I don't have hanging behind me. I need, I got to work on that. I'd have I'd have a mini replica like in every room of <laughs> my house. You know that statue that I have? Yeah. Good stuff, my friend. Well, uh, so let's hook up in the World Series. I look forward to it. Yeah, give me a call. The great Cal Bear. Good luck to your Bears. Continued on football. Appreciate it. Good being on with you. Well, everybody knows here on A's Cast Live, we've been giving the snakes all the love we possibly can. Our man, Tori Lavello, we're rooting on Arizona. So why not bring on an absolute Diamondback legend? You all know him as the World Series champion. The all-star Luis Gonzalez is with us from the ballpark right now. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. So you know what it's like to be in a tough series. I mean, obviously, I mean, Philadelphia right now, I mean, the other guy gets paid too. I mean, it's like, it's incredible how well they have played. They're firing all in all cylinders. But I got to think now getting back to Arizona, it's going to be rally. It's going to be rowdy in the Valley of the Sun tonight. Yeah, I mean, two tough games for us in, in uh, Philly. Just a hostile environment. Our guys weren't able to overcome over there and, uh, they were very much looking forward to this game here uh, this afternoon here at the ballpark here at Chase Field. Well, the one thing a lot of people may not have paid attention to, but just talk about how good the Diamondbacks have been at home this year. Yeah, we've played well at home. And, you know, I think the big key for us is just getting out of the gates early. We fell behind in those two games. Uh, the first two series that we played in against Milwaukee and again against the Dodgers, we got to early leads. And I think for us, that's what helps kind of a mix of young guys on our team and we have some veteran players but if we can get out to an early lead 
that's really going to help us, uh, especially in today's game. Well, you know, uh, you want to talk about crazy series. I mean, the World Series you won against the Yankees, that thing was so dramatic, so back and forth. So you can have all this momentum happen in one city, in one ballpark, but it can dramatically change once you come back home. Yeah, and we saw that yesterday. I mean, the Astros went out and playing on the road and they ended up winning the game for us. We're going to have to flip the script and try to, to win a home game here. But, uh, you know, being down two games to nothing, if you could win game three, it, it really makes people start thinking about it. Just as uh, Texas Rangers, we thought we're in command of that series and they uh, lose yesterday to the Houston Astros. And now you're like, Oh, maybe the Astros aren't dead in the waters. Like everybody thought. You know, when you think about a team growing up and a team growing right in front of your eyes, we talked to you earlier this year on this program, and obviously the Dodgers were running away with it. How much have you seen this grown? And how much have you seen this team grow? And talk about the growth that you've seen with this ball club. Oh, uh, it's been great. I mean, you're, we have uh, arguably probably the guy who's going to win uh, the rookie of the year unanimously, and then. Uh, he's probably going to get some MVP votes. He's just been a diamond in the rough, man. This guy has been a star ever since he got up here to the big leagues. We've got some great young players, Alec Thomas, Moreno behind the plate. These guys are really getting a chance now to shine and play on the national spotlight and to go along with some of our veteran guys, our Christian Walkers, our Guriels, Tommy Pham, who we picked up in a trade. These guys have all done extremely well for us, but, uh, this is an accelerated year for us. We weren't expected to be here at the start of the season. We probably thought we were going to get here maybe next year or the year after. But to be where we're at right now and to win, you know, the, the wild card series and then to win that first uh, series against the Dodgers to get here to the National League Championship Series has been a true, truly blessed. Uh, we're not saying it's over. Yeah. But to get to this far right now, it's really been a, a positive year for our organization. Well, Tori Lovello came on this program, and I, I wrote it down on this swing and A's here because he told us love, trust, commitment, effort. Those four things are what the Diamondbacks are built on. So I wrote it on the back of this to always remind myself that's not about analytics. Just talk about the clubhouse, the organization. When you start talking about being built on love, trust, commitment, and effort. Yeah, and he's he's the guy who leads by example. I mean, he's the guy that uh, has the pulse of the team. Uh, he's our leader, and I think all the young guys have really bought into everything that he's talked to them about. And uh, getting that trust from spring training, the first day of spring training, into believing uh, the process, trust the process of what they're going to come up with and what they're going to do. And it's really worked out well with a bunch of our young players and some of the veteran guys have really bought into it. Not only that, but... You know, I talked about Corbin Carroll earlier, being yeah. a young guy, he hustles every ball out. And what that does is it motivates a lot of the older guys on the team and gets them fired up to go out there and play well. When's the last time you've seen a guy that size so explosive? Well, I, I think Altuve is the only small guy that you would think of with the power and the, and, and the excitement that he brings to the game when he won the most valuable player. You look at his size and you go, wait. Wait a minute, you're taken aback, but I mean, this is a new generation. You look at him, he's pretty built up. He's a stocky guy, but he's 
You know, he's not 6'2 or anything like that, but uh, he gets it done, man, and he plays the game the right way. He goes out there and has a lot of fun, and it's great to come around here now walk around the Valley in the state of Arizona and to see a lot of number seven jerseys around here now. Brandon Font going tonight obviously has to pitch well against a team that is hotter than uh, – it's amazing. The numbers just show how hot – I want to give a lot of credit to Brent Strom. What he's been able to do, it's like everywhere he goes, he changes the staff, he changes the pitchers. It's more than just physical. So much of it's about the mental game. One of the reasons why this team is where they are is because Strom is so good as a pitching coach. Talk about what you've seen there. Yeah, he's one of the best in the business. And I think when he goes out there and touches, especially a lot of our young players, uh, they know that he's got the credentials that go with it. And, I mean, you look at some of the, the pitchers that he's had in the past and uh, the numbers that they've been able to put up and the awards that they've been able to win, I think he's earned that trust from a lot of our pitchers, and it carries over to those guys. Every time he speaks, everybody's listening. You know, velocity plays so much in the postseason. It's unbelievable, especially out of your starters. You guys back in the day had a couple guys that threw pretty hard coming out there, and Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling. Uh, just talk about the advantage that you have when, yeah, you want your, your your bullpen guys to come in and blow smoke, but when you have that smoke coming from the very start of the game, what kind of advantage is that? Well, it's good. I mean, I, the big thing, too, to go along with the velocity is location, especially when you're facing a team like the Phillies that uh, from top to bottom, they swing the bat extremely well. They take advantage of mistakes. And I think for a guy like today, for – a guy like Brandon Fott, he's got to keep the ball down in the strike zone. He's got good velocity, but he's got to keep it down. If he starts elevating that fastball, the later innings uh, that goes on, he's been known to give up the, the long ball now and then. And when you're facing a team that hits a lot of home runs, you got to be very cautious out there and not make mistakes. On the flip side of that, what was it like for you as a hitter when you knew they had four or five guys down there that all, uh, that all blew smoke? Well, you try to jump on them early and get some runs because you don't know how they're going to come in. And you're right. When those guys are throwing gas and they're coming in there and being very effective with all their pitches, you want to score some runs early and uh, be able to to kind of establish yourself a little bit. To, so uh, when those guys come in, if they're tough, you don't have to feel like the pressure's on you to score. Let's end on this. I, I know the Phoenix Suns have been red hot and everybody's fired up about the NBA, but are people like reinvigorated right now with the Arizona Dimebacks and this run that they're on down there in uh, Arizona? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, this is a this is a different type of town. There's a lot of transplants from all over the country that come here to live in Arizona, and uh, we're starting to see a lot of the younger generation kids when their parents moved here. Now, you know, they have kids, and now they're starting to grow up as Arizona Diamondbacks fans, so we're starting to get more support out here. It's been a pretty special year for our club, and hopefully we can go out there and make a series out of this today and try to win game three. Well, you want to talk crazy? We're already talking about spring training tickets and being in Mesa, Arizona in February. We're doing it all show. It's like spring training's right around the corner. It's hard to believe, but obviously you guys got something bigger there. We always appreciate your time. You know how much. Uh, we love having you on the program as somebody who is uh, uh, so accomplished in our game. Uh, good luck to, to the club, and it uh, should be fun to watch and hopefully get a couple of victories down there in Arizona. You got it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, let's ask Doug Glanville. He's calling this series. As we say, he's one of the smartest guys in all of baseball. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Doing real good out here. I'm out in Phoenix, and um, – 
on the road, time zones, planes. It's like, uh, you know, like the plane does, man. I feel good. Well, I got to say this. We got to give you some love because been listening to you. Um, a lot of people don't understand that when you're doing radio that people can't see what you're talking about. Like it's easy, <laughs> right. it's easy when you're doing TV and you go, well, you see the left fielder, he slipped, you saw it. But I mean, <laughs> listening to you, you do a great job of not only explaining the game, but you're actually helping explain what is going on. Too many people, as they're driving their car, they don't think about it. Radio is the theater of the mind. You can say anything you want. They got to believe you. I want to commend, commend you on not only how you explain the game, but how you let people know as you're listening what really is going on. You're able to paint that picture. I appreciate that. It's, um, you know, it's an adjustment when you first start doing radio this consistently to realize that. You know, you have to paint the picture. You have to describe and have the words and do it in a timely fashion. Uh, and sometimes it's happening with information coming in. You know, you think about instant replay, right? It's like, oh, well, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out what happened. Is he yeah. he's on the base? And so you're trying to get that and synthesize. Um, it helps having John Shambi or my partners, you know, you know, Roxy Bernstein and and many of the others, uh, Dave Jagler. Uh, they they help me a lot too to kind of you know get their eyes on it and share information. But um, what's, what I found interesting about radio is you don't, you don't have as much time as I, I kind of think you would have to tell a lot of stories, like uninterrupted stories, because you can't miss the action. So, uh, so you think radio, you're talking more, true, but you also have to be more descriptive uh, because you can't let that pitch go or you have to really make sure. So, um, you know, that part I've really learned how to like put that aside or like figure out how to do it, pause and come back to it. And, um, you know, I feel like it's, you know, worked well, but I, I enjoy it a lot. You get to talk to all the players and the coaches before the game. You just, you can really kind of go any direction uh, once you synthesize all this information pregame uh, to be able to marry it with what happens in the real life action of the game. Well, we're, we're big D-back fans on this show. Tori Lovello's a former A. He comes on this show. I, I have written here on our old swing and A's. Last time Tori was on, he uh, talked about the thing they're built on, love, trust, commitment, and effort. I wrote it on the back of this so I never forget it. We had Luis Gonzalez on yesterday. Uh, Dan Heron's down there. So there's a, there's a little A's yeah. connection, so we're always rooting for the D-backs. And I thought, man. If they, they just got to get back home, they just got to get that one win because they have been pretty good at home this year. Winning in Philly, as we all know now, it's one of the greatest home field advantages we've ever seen in our game. So just talk about how going from Philly, going to Arizona, and seeing Arizona get that walk-off win, what that does to their mojo and what that does to this series. Yeah, well, We certainly talked to Tori Lovello about that before the game. And, you know, he was consistent in what he said about it. He's like, look, you know, it's a narrative shift if you can just get that one win. You know, just the conversation changes. You're not like down 3-0. You're not, you're like, wait a minute, you're kind of in this. Uh, even if you go back to game one, where, you know, started off the Phillies home run, home run, home run, home run. And then it was like a lull. And then the Diamondbacks got like three runs. You're like, wait a minute, this is a game. And it was a game they had no control over for like the first six innings. And then you're sitting there going, they could have stolen that game. So even the games that seem like the Phillies sort of dominated, there's always pockets in there that something could shift one way or the other if you get a couple of hits together and string them together. So I think Tori Lovello knew how to communicate that, look, 
we just we're home. It's a whole different stage. There's not, you know, 80,000 Philly fans, you know, they're cheering for you now. Uh, all those things were uh, something that they could tap into to realize that it's a whole different season coming home now and being able to play uh, on this stage. And they proved it, you know. I mean, what about Brandon Fought? I mean, man, yeah. the guy was just lights out. So, you know, that was a guy that, you know, they're buried for dead. Like, oh, the number three starter, Diamondbacks are done, no chance. I was like, well, he pitched well against the Dodgers. So, you know, you never know. You kind of forget, like, oh, by the way, the Diamondbacks swept the 101-win Dodgers, just wiped them out. So it's like, that that's something, right? I mean, so I think you just can't count anybody out. And uh, the D-backs, you know, their offense wasn't explosive, but it was good enough, and it got, you know, the timely hitting they needed. Yeah, the strategy going tonight, the strategy, I have a problem with it. Uh, and we were, before you got on, my old college coach, Sam Perraro, he's a Hall of Famer here at San Jose State and City of San Jose, won a lot of games, been to the College World Series. He claims to have invented the, invented the staffing game because we used to do this all the time. I hate it because it just takes one guy to screw it up, right? It takes one guy. It can look good, and then one guy comes in, but that's what we're going to go with. And I know you were probably, I don't know if you could hear us in the back, we were talking about Mass and Bumgarner. Obviously, this is more a Bay Area thing because Bumgarner is such a big deal here. It's like people forget he was supposed to be here. He was supposed to pitch in one of these games, which would have eventually would have pushed fought back to today. And, like, I don't know how much you guys will talk about it. I don't even know how much you've even thought about it. But that's, you know, that's the problem. You know, the D-backs, you start to see – the lack of pitching in baseball, like in a game seven you know, or a seven-game series, you start to see teams scrambling just for a four-starter. Yeah, and that's not the – the Phillies don't have that problem. That's no. why they're so dangerous. Um, but, yeah, the look, the ERA of the Diamondback pitchers after Gallen and Kelly is 5.77. I mean, their starters just they've – been, they've been just like lighting, lighting fires. And, um, but, you know, Fott just got better and better. I mean, you know, that's the thing. And you never know how people will respond. But yeah, they have, you forget they have Zach Davies, they have Kyle Gibson, they have all these other cats, uh, Bumgarner. And if they were like 100% right and they're at their best, that would be a different thing, but they're not. But once again, the D-backs still won with their third starter. That's baseball. And, and they're, they're back in it because of you know, the quite character that was not written in the script on day one in Brandon Fopp, but he pitched a, Fopp pitched a great game. So um, that's why you just don't know. And uh, there's no doubt that the, the fact that they are able to uh, gain this win is just a huge confidence boost because then now you know you can win all kinds of games if you just execute on the mound. I mean, that is critical. No doubt. And when, when you talk about Philly, I mean, obviously you know a lot about it, your college days, your playing days. We always think of Philly – as this is the toughest town to play in, right? These are the guys throwing snowballs at, 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 at Santa Claus. They're booing Mike Schmidt, the greatest Philly of all time. But for all that, you talk about Eagles fans and everything, to see when you flip it and they're giving all the love that they can give, when now that you go back as a former player and you look at Citizens Bank and you look at just this home field advantage, have you ever seen anything like it when Philly turns on all the love for the team? <laughs> no, I, I can't say I have. I mean, there's some great fan bases throughout sports, so there's no doubt that they're not alone. But from a baseball standpoint, 
uh, and knowing Philadelphia, I, I've never seen it quite like this. And, you know, I didn't, I played for a lot of teams that weren't very good. So that's definitely part of it, but the new ballpark, which opened up in, in 04 and then having the 08 teams and the good teams and now the expectation. And I think, I think we're all different as a society, right? You come out of the pandemic and, you know, just things kind of shift a little bit. And, and now, you know, Trey Turner is a guy that they wanted over there, Bryce Harper. And they're like, said, well, maybe we have an ability to improve a player performance in another way. You know, we're not going to necessarily motivate them in one way by just getting on them. Maybe it is about something else. And they kind of leaned into that. Alec Bohm, you know, guys that responded. And that's the test in and of itself. You get the support, then what do you do with it, right? And Turner turned into this, you know, mega all-star. He was already a great player, but he kind of found it again. And uh, I think it's good to see that there's this versatility of response for Philly fans. Cause I, I felt like there was still plenty of support when I was playing there. You just didn't necessarily get it in mass like that, but you always got it. You know, the fans were great to me, you know, and, and I had a very good relationship. It was always simple to me. First of all, I was a Philly fan as a kid. Yeah. So I get it. Um, second of all, I, you know, figured it, it's like, it's all about like playing hard, respecting the game, respecting Philly history. Um, you know, I think if you do all those things, and, and you're open about it, I, I think they'll have your back, even if you're not hitting, you know, 375. So um, it's, it was good to see. And I think it was not just good for Turner or Bohm in those moments, but for the whole team to see that they have a fan base that really has their back. All right. When you had maybe a time as a Philly where you had a, a long over going, did they ever sing a song to you? Did they ever do anything at the at the old vet? Were they singing to you in a long over back in the day? <laughs> well, I don't know if they were singing, but um, I, you know, I fortunately you know, I had anytime I had like a big over. Uh, thankfully, there wasn't a ton of those. Yeah. I had enough hits in there because I was always swinging. Uh, I would get the ball. I would stop the game and get the ball. And people were like, oh, is that your 500th hit? No, I'm just one for 21 right now. So I'm just getting the ball. So I stopped the game a lot of times, but I confused everybody. So that was always fun to me. But no, the Philly fans, they, they were good to me. And and um, and yes, it was hard at times. Look, I got booed. It's not that I didn't get booed. I, I uh, misread a ball and Eric Milton's could have been no hitter. And I got booed. And the next, next inning, Troy Hawkins threw a pitch in my head when I was trying to butt. And I ended up on my back. And they cheered for that. And I'm at home. Uh, but I got the butt down and Burrow got the game winning hit or someone. And that was it, you know, and I was upset, but I also knew that they were being consistent. There was nothing uh, inconsistent about it. So they get on you. But I think overall I had a good relationship. And, you know, I was living downtown in Philadelphia. Fans would stop me and walking across the street and they would they wouldn't just be like, you're terrible. You're great. They'd be just like, Hey, you got to work on tucking your front shoulder. In, okay. Yeah. You got to get that closed. You know, you get your hands, a little, maybe if you put your elbow a little bit higher, but I, mean, I got hitting lessons from Philly fans uh, in, in downtown Philly. I mean, that's just, that's just Phillies. I love Philly. Philly's a great town. All right. So if you're the Phillies, you know, there has been talk. I mean, it's, you're not going to criticize anything offensively because they've been a juggernaut. Obviously everybody's hitting. I mean, the numbers are off the charts, but, yes, yeah. are you going to remain where Castellanos, Riamuto are more down in the order? Castellanos is historically hot. Do you want to move him up a little bit? How would you do the order knowing that you're probably going to get right, left, right, left? I mean, you're going to see – I mean, in a staffing game, you could see anything. Yeah. 
we asked Rob Thompson this every day, especially when Castellanos had the four home runs in two games. And he's like, I come down, I just don't want to mess with it. You know, yeah. it's a uh, yeah, regular season. You might look at it differently. Like, okay, game 39, like, okay, let's just move this guy up. But now when something's working and guys are comfortable and in the rhythm and you don't want to seem like you're panicking or being too knee jerk, I think, you know, his, his decision was more to keep the stability of it. So I think it's, you know, it could go a lot of different ways. Uh, now that they got shut down, you could sort of look at it differently. But, you know, these guys have overall been really good. And it's worked, like you said, the matchups, the righties and lefties are spaced a certain kind of way so that you can't just bring in Joe Mantiply and just kind of go through all these lefties. Uh, so that's what, that's what they're going to weigh. And, um, but, you know, once again, with these bullpen-type games, you know, you have to think differently. And you, all you're doing is trying to get one out at a time. Yeah. And uh, you might use 12 pitchers, but that's all you want. And then you look up and hopefully you have the W. 27 outs. How do I get all these guys to get me 27 outs? Let's uh, quickly, before we let you go, switch over to the other series. We can't say we've never seen this before because we had the 2019 World Series. We saw where no one could take advantage of home field. And right now, I mean, it's a reality. It's like, can I, can I, it's road field advantage. It's like, I'm on the road. I have the advantage. I, it's the strangest thing. I mean, what do you make of when I can't win in my home yard and I can't lose wherever I go on the road? Well, that was the Astros season. I mean, they were 39 and 42 at home this year, which was terrible. And they were 51 and 30 on the road. That, that was their year. So the whole season, even after the Rangers wiped them out, I was like, they're right where they want to be. They're just good on the road for whatever reason. So, I, I just think it's like very consistent to how these teams have played this year, uh, especially the Astros. They're kind of telling that narrative, and, and that's why uh, they could be in control of this series because of it. So um, that's Houston. You know, they they had that kind of year. So you know, you got two great managers with a lot of institutional knowledge going at it. They're going to use every trick in the book. Uh, they might bring in David Copperfield and try magic. You know, they might try anything. Uh, but they're a lot of fun to watch, and I love watching them especially when Bochi was literally retired and Dusty was on the sidelines before the scandal and look at what they're doing now. It just, it speaks to the importance of having great people skills, managerial skills and institutional knowledge. Uh, that still, still, it still means a lot. I don't care what formulas you figured out or algorithms you figured out or bullpen. Uh, it still comes down to having a balance between great information and great people skills. And um, and that's why this series is really fun to watch because it's like two heavyweight boxers going at it. What's the mindset you think right now, Texas, after losing these first two games at home? Well, you know, they still have another one to to just right the ship. They still could be up 3-2 and go back to Houston. So um, they have a really good offense. You know, that, that's their, their explosive. Their bullpen is a weakness. That's, that's their challenge. And if they, anytime I see them only get one inning or a third of an inning out of their starter, I'm like, they're in trouble because they, that ripples and there's no days off. Right. So not at least these three games. So you gotta, you gotta sort of pace yourself and it's hard to do when every out counts. So I I thought that that was a bad sign that the Astros got into their bullpen early because that is their weakness and, and it's a strength of the Astros. Well, I can't tell you during the playoffs, you coming on from Arizona means a lot. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We're listening. And uh, Arizona's back in the series. You know, if they they lost yesterday, you're thinking, oh, is this thing going to be four game and sweep? But 
It's not. Hopefully, we, we got a good series. But thank you. Have a great call today. We appreciate it. And you be well. All right. Appreciate you having me. Thank Always you. The great Doug Glanville right here on A's Cast Live. How cool is that? Rook, how you doing? Welcome, welcome back to A's Cast Live. Yeah, man. Thank y'all for having me. Always good to be here. So uh, have we been doing any country concerts? Any singing on stage? What's been going on since we last saw you? None of that. None of that recently. Uh, just a lot of hanging out. A lot of not doing a, not doing a lot at all. Um, mixing in some golf for my off season. Yeah. I like to do. Besides that, um, not a lot going on. You know, I for all of us, because the A's wanted all of us to take some time off. So we basically took two weeks off because we normally go straight into the postseason and we do the shows through the postseason, but they wanted to take time off. For you, how important was it for you to be able to sit back, kind of detach from it, and start the reflection on your first full season in the big leagues? Yeah, I think that's at that time definitely important um, mentally and physically, both just kind of decompress. Um you know, from the daily grind of it a little bit on, on the year and, and what you did well, what you didn't do well, but also, you know, take take two or three weeks, whatever it is, to let your body kind of recover, um, you know, from, from getting after it for whatever it was, seven straight months, uh, 162 games. So, uh, yeah, that, that little – no, it's like a two-week period after, after the season ends. You just kind of step away from everything, uh, let your body, your mind both be compressed, and then you're ready to get back after for the offseason. This was a question I, w- I would not ask you during the regular season. I knew I'd wait until after the season or even spring training. I, I do want to know, you got out to such a hot start. How much added pressure did that hot start put on you, or maybe it didn't put any at all? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think anytime something like that happens and the expectations um, for yourself, uh, both internally and externally coming from other people, uh, gets raised to such a lofty standard, I think that's going to have an effect. And I think uh, I think I did a pretty good job managing that, though. I think I think I went through a little period after that kind of hot start where I obviously struggled for a while, but I was able to continue working, um, you know, both with with our with our baseball staff as well as uh, as with uh, Ben Strack, our mental skills guy, to kind of continue working on confidence through struggles and things like that. And I was able to come out of it on the other end. And I think, the, you know, when I kind of reflect on my year, obviously um, I'm happy with how the year went as a whole, but I think the thing I'm most proud of and the thing that, um, you know, encourages me the most about it is how I was able to finish. I had a really good yeah. last month and a half, two months ago. Um, and I think that after going through, uh, you know, kind of a lull, uh, the, the, when that, uh, you know, May and June period to be able to come out of that and finish really strong, um, was super encouraging for me. And it's, it's something that I'm going to be able to build up of for sure. I, I, I agree with you 100%. The way you finished was really, really strong. And it also, not only your finish, but the reflection on some of the young guys, when we saw Geloff emerge, we saw Ryan Noda come back from the broken jaw, and he finished strong. So not, not only talk about how it was important that you finished strong, but the guys that are going to be here next year, you helped them get across the line also. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we built a lot of momentum for the last two, two and a half months or so, like you said, with, with Noda coming back, continue to be who he was early on. Um, just further establishing himself and, and building his identity. Geloff playing like he did. Uh, Law getting a lot of experience, getting a lot of at-bats. Sody getting some experience, a lot of young guys like that. Uh, Jordan Diaz continuing to get to play a lot. Uh, I think we built a lot of momentum going into the next year that we were kind of able to um, 
get a lot of guys experience and a lot of guys learned a lot, a lot of guys improved. And then also we kind of got the, the feeling of what it's going to be like to play together next year. You know, that the group that was out there at the end of the year um, is going to be pretty similar. I would imagine to what it looks like early next year and moving yeah. into moving into next season. So I think, you know, getting out there, getting to play together, um, figuring out how we communicate as a group, um, you know, how, how our dynamic works is going to be huge for us next year as well. I think about when you left spring training last year, kind of whose pitching was really up in the air now that we've seen J.P. Sears go 32 starts, now we've seen all these different arms, and at the end of the year, here comes Boyle, here comes Estes. I have to think from a guy that's watching a lot of the pitching, you have to say, wow, the competition and the arms in spring training next year are going to be far different than what you had last year. Yeah, I think so. I think there's probably going to be you know seven, eight guys um, at least coming into camp with a chance to win starting spots. Um, you know, you, you, you think JP has a good, good shot at one of those after making every start this year and throwing out he did, uh, Joe coming up and doing what he did at the end of the year was cool. Uh, you're going to have obviously Paul, hopefully healthy for a full season is going to go back out there and, and do what he does. Um, you know, not to mention the young guys, Joey and, and, uh, Medina as well, as well as a ton of other guys, I'm sure I'm missing some, but, um, you know, Ken, what Ken did, the way Ken improved throughout the entire year was really encouraging and fun to watch, uh, I think, you know, as, as far as anybody on our team, um, from where they started in spring where the end of the year, Ken might have made as, as, as big a stride as anybody. He finished the year as a yeah. really, really strong starting pitch, making some really quality starts. So uh, there's going to be a bunch of competition for those for those five spots in spring, um, and I'm excited to watch it play out, as, as, as I think everybody in our organization and our team is as well. I talk about this all the time where the offseason, the training, obviously, we just think about you guys working out. But the training is not only physical, it's mental. This offseason is going to be different from you. This is not going to be about, well, I'm getting an invitation. I'm, I'm trying to make a club. You're on this club. You're going to be a big part of this club next year. So just I know you, you may have started or you're going to start at some point. How is this offseason, the training, both physical and mental, going to be different from years past? And now you're truly – you got a better idea of what it takes to last for an entire season. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the offseason and the spring experience is definitely going to be um, unique for me. It's going to be different for me than anything I've experienced just because I'm coming into to camp knowing that you know, I'm going to be looked to looked at as, as being a guy to hit the middle, middle of the order all season and produce. And I think, uh, you know, in the past, the offseason has been spent trying to figure out, okay, how do I get to the big leagues? How do I stay there? What do I do? And now it's like, okay, I've got the full season of bats. What did we do well? What did we not do as well? Where are the, you know, where are the margins we can improve on um, to ultimately take the next step forward as a player? And that's kind of what I've started to reflect on this last week, talking to to people I trust about that, um, figuring out what I want to attack, you know, where the biggest gains can be made this off season. Um, and ultimately what, what, what allows me, like I said, to take that next step as a player next year. So um, I'm excited about it. I think, um, like I said, I'm super encouraged with how I finished the year. I think I learned a lot throughout the course of the entire season. I think I'm, I'm going to be able to do some things this winter um, and in the spring as well into early next year. That's going to, that's going to help me, um, you know, continue to improve and ultimately just be as good as I can be. How much fun are you having out there on Twitter during the playoffs? I've been seeing you tweeting up and you're tweeting with fans. And next thing you know, there's debates over the sweeper. And is it a slurve? Is it just a bigger slider? How much fun are you having in that with that interaction? Yeah, I mean, it's a good time. People get worked up about it. But um, <laughs> the, the, the way, I mean, people get worked up about everything on Twitter, obviously. But 
uh, the way I see, I think, I just think there's a gap between the way that we as players kind of see and understand the game um, and what's going on on our TVs, just from being in it and all the, all the information we're exposed to and have the, have the, uh, have access to, um, and then what fans see. So all I'm trying to do is just kind of bridge that gap a little bit, because I know there's a, there's a ton of, of super passionate baseball fans who all they want to do is learn more about the game, learn more about what's happening in the modern version of the game. And they they ask good questions. They're curious, they're engaging. And it's really fun to talk to and engage with those people. I mean, there's always the, 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 the vocal minority is exists in any sect of the population that are going to be loud, obnoxious, and just try to be, um, try to disagree with anything or try to be contrarian. But I think, I think I've had a good time um, just talking to and engaging with a lot of the, the baseball fan population who's genuinely curious to learn and, and just wants to understand the game at a higher level. Well, yeah, and, the, and this whole debate over the sweeper, I mean, I'm not going to mention, but, you know, whether it's here or when I'm doing TV on NBC, I work with some old pitchers that they go, ah, hogwash, this sweeper thing. Now the sweeper is real. And you even brought up Adam Wainwright when he was working the postseason. He brought it up. I mean, you're the guy facing it. You're the guy seeing it. Fans need to realize this new pitch, they gave it a new name. The only reason why they gave it a new name is because the date is different. It is a different pitch. The way it the way it crosses home plate, uh, you, you know, we're always looking at stuff with vertical and horizontal, the way it goes horizontal. It's a different pitch. You're seeing it. You're the guy swinging at it. Yeah, and I think that that kind of goes back to what I'm saying. The information we have access to. If, I mean, you can look at, you can look at the movement plots of pitchers and the way their pitch their pitches move, and it's it is at a different place on the movement plot plot than a slider is. It's at a different place on the movement plot than a slurve is. It's at a different place on the movement plot as a curveball is. So it's just like if you look at the way these pitches grade out and the way that they come across, you know, when the when the track man or the Hawkeye or whatever it is reads the induced vertical break, the horizontal break, the spin axis, all this stuff, it's pretty clearly it's its own thing. And it's not that they people just started throwing it. It's that we just started separating it from the normal slider. So instead of calling everything a slider, we're now calling this one thing a slider and start thing a sweeper. And it's just not that big of a change. People want to, people want to claim that, or people think that people, that we are claiming that we've invented a new pitch and that's not the case at all. We've just started classifying this certain sect of a slider as its own pitch to make it more easily identifiable. And if you look in a movement plot, it's pretty obvious that that it exists uh, in the way that I just described it. How much are you watching the playoffs? Uh, All of it. I love the playoffs. Yeah. I I, I'm glad you said that because, because we, we've, we, uh, we almost feel like we've cracked the code here because a lot of people have tried to say that the, the playoffs is just, it's randomness. I've kind of flipped the script on that going, you know what, the regular season where you got the Angels using 66 players, the Braves use 53, there's a lot of randomness for six-plus months in Major League Baseball. But when you get to the postseason, you slim it down in the postseason. It's only your best players. It's only your best pitchers. What what, what do you think you're learning from watching this postseason? I think think what you just said is exactly right, um, is you you get to the – obviously – you know, teams throughout the regular season they give that they give guys off days, or, or one guy might get a DH day to get some rest. But in the postseason, it's like these guys are throwing out the same, for the most part. Obviously, one or two maybe positions will switch, but they're throwing out the same lineup out there every single night because this is the lineup they want to go compete with when it matters the most. And I think that's fun to watch. It's 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 fun to watch. Um, you know, the the guys you want to see hit get all the important at bats, um, which is really cool. But I think uh, I think you know the thing that we're learning is is 
that there's different ways that, or there's ways to construct teams that are, that are, that are better built for playoffs than maybe other ones. Um, I don't know if we know exactly what those details are. I mean, I'm sure people do. I'm not a GM or there's people way smarter than me, but um, the teams are kind of built to get hot at the right moment. And it gives any team that makes the playoffs a chance to win. And I think that's what makes our sport so cool. Any big off season plans? No, no, not really. Just going to be around, um, you know, the normal stuff. Like I said, work out, uh, play golf, hang out with my kid, and then um, start 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 doing baseball stuff here. Maybe a month or so, start swinging the bat, start throwing a little bit, and just get ready for spring. Well, we're hoping for a, a big year from you. I mean, this past year was tremendous growth, and what next year could bring. But let's just end on this. And you and you you mentioned your kid. You know, forever now, you will live on baseball reference, and forever there will be that 30 spot in the home run column. Just how big was that for you to get to that number? Because that number is a really large special number. It is. It was cool. And and when you look at it practically, um, 30 and 29 are not that big of a difference. Obviously, it's just one home run. 29 would have still been a really good year, but to get the 30th, um, to kind of reach that benchmark and that goal was was super special, and um, I'm I, I'm going to say I went up that last bat of my season, and it was going to go one or two ways. I was going to hit a homer, or I was going to swing and miss three times. We were going to go for it, um, and I went up there and I got I a good pitch to hit and put a good swing on it, and was able to get there, which is really cool. Well, congratulations on everything. I know it was a big year for you, a big year for your family. Enjoy the off season. Have good holidays. Thanksgiving, Christmas, everything. And before we know it, we'll see you down in Mesa, Arizona. That's right, guys. Can't wait. See you all then. Take care. Brent Rooker. That's a big deal, man. That's a big deal. All right. Enjoy the games today. Philly, Arizona, Houston, Texas. We will be back on Thursday at 1 o'clock. Correct, yep. And we will know who's in the World Series. Uh, Yeah, World Series starts next Friday. So we will break down the winners of the LCSs, and we'll get you ready for the World Series. We'll have a jam-packed show. We'll have all kinds of guests preparing you for the World Series. Have a great weekend. Enjoy all this baseball, and we'll see you next Thursday. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.